Introducing the PARD TD32 Multi-Spectral Rifle Scope, combining thermal and night vision for unbeatable performance. Effortlessly switch between daytime, night vision, and thermal modes with the picture-in-picture feature. Spot targets accurately with thermal and night vision precision. Hit your mark every time, day or night, with a built-in 1,200-yard laser rangefinder. Upgrade your shooting game with the TD32 Multi-Spectral Rifle Scope by PARD. I'm installing this on a rifle this week, and I'm fired up to give it a run. Go to PARD.com to get your TD32 Multi-Spectral Rifle Scope today. This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is my friend and SEAL teammate, Drago Zoran. Drago was born in 1960 in Poland, was imprisoned for what is essentially political activism, came to the United States in the 1980s, became a SEAL, and served in combat. His book is called The Pledge to America, One Man's Journey from Political Prisoner to U.S. Navy SEAL. And now, without further ado, here's Drago. You might see that I collaborate with Ironclad on a lot of different projects. In fact, I have worked with them on my book trailers, this podcast, as well as a few other exciting endeavors that are currently in development. Ironclad teams up with some of the biggest brands in the world to create dynamic films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. If you are a brand or individual looking to elevate your content or start a podcast, don't hesitate to reach out through their website. This is Ironclad.com. Dot com and make sure you follow them on all major platforms at this is ironclad man good to see you <laughs> nice to see you too man it was a long time no see you. Yeah. this is something that i was watching your podcast all the time thank you for oh. inviting me i mean this is something that i'm i mean i was watching it but never thought of being part of it and this is something that uh, you know especially now nowadays i think it's important that we, there are things that we can talk about uh, with wider uh, uh, audience like yours, and because uh, our country is in, I would say, not very good spot as far as the divisions and uh, are concerned. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I am very curious as to any parallels you see between what you experienced growing up in your first twenty plus years of life, and then what you're seeing now. But. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we crossed paths in the SEAL teams a few times, so that's why this is one of the, my favorite parts of doing a podcast is an excuse to get to sit down and, uh, and spend some time with someone that I haven't seen in a, in a while. So, man, it is so good to see you. Likewise. Thank you. And, <laughs> and who's, uh, who's this young guy? That's me from the SEAL times. Again, that was when I was much younger then than, than now. So, yep, that's me. Oh, man. And for, for those listening that aren't watching, it's uh, Drago's book here, The Pledge to America, One Man's Journey from Political Prisoner to U.S. Navy SEAL. And, man, we, we knew each other in the teens, but I learned so much about you by reading this book. And, oh, man, every American needs to read this book. Um, and I, that's a great place to start. So, I mean, you were born in 1960 in Poland yes. and what were your first memories there? 
my first memories are when I think when I burned the neighbor's uh, uh, wheat field, acres of it. And uh, yeah, so me and my friends were playing with matches and uh, that's like the very early memories. But my father, who was a communist uh, and a member of Communist Party, uh, he was able to squash everything. So I was pretty much at that time when he was with us, I was untouchable. There was nobody could even challenge us. They, there were some people, uh, the, the neighbor whose wheat field was destroyed, he was trying to sue us. So the Communist Party sent of uh, weaponized uh, uh, police and secret secret state police on the neighbor, and they just persuade him not to press any charges, and they let us along. But this is how socialist state works. Uh, you know, I would like to make a point here that Poland was never communist country. We refer to it. I refer to it myself sometimes, but technically it was socialist state. Not even Soviet Union was communist country. They were all socialist states behind the Iron Curtain. So, uh, so yeah, but this is how socialism works. And whether it is Adolf Hitler socialism, uh, uh, national socialism, Joseph Stalin socialism, uh, Castro socialism, any other socialism, well, they have these things, these many things in common, well, like intimidation, the weaponization of uh, state entities like police, like uh, secret service, intelligence. And uh, so this is uh, political prisoners, uh, uh, persecution of political opponents. So this is uh, what, uh, what, what, what happened in Poland too, the same thing, the socialism and socialism. So yeah, I could get away with a lot of stuff because my father was communist until he left. <laughs> I, I, then yeah. the story changed. Yeah, you had a, you had a, I mean, your childhood was, uh, I mean, prepared you for some things later in life, but um, I mean, it's incredible reading these stories. And did you have to learn Russian? At what point in your schooling did you have to learn Russian? Was that from the very beginning or did that come in later? Uh, no, it came in in the fifth grade. Everybody in Poland was forced to learn Russian. And this is when I first time actually realized the power, the, the power and the perversion of socialist uh, state. Because when, uh, and it was not political, um, when in fifth grade, I asked the teacher of Russian language, why do we have to learn that Russian language? Because uh, there's many people, including myself, don't speak even Polish very well. So can we do, why is that? Why is this being forced on us? Well, I, didn't, I was not prepared what, what, what happened next. I was pulled out, well, actually I was pulled out literally by my ear because the teacher woke up in Poland, there was a custom. If you did something wrong, they want to take you somewhere like to the principal's office. They grab you by the ear and just drag you there. So that's what happened to me. So they, the teacher dragged me to principal's office, explained what happened, what I said. And the next thing, the principal calls police, the police, with secret, uh, uh, police, secret state police uh, went to pick my mom from her school. She was a teacher in different school. They basically uh, detained her. They drove her to my school and then portrayed, and, and then were just like yelling at us. And, uh, and, you know, my mom was scared. They told us if my mom 
doesn't instill more love for socialism and the Marxist ideology in me and my siblings, we will go to orphanage and my mom will be, uh, she could she go to prison even too for abuse. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine the scare? I didn't realize how dangerous the socialist state is because of the power they have over you. So that was my, 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 my those are my memories. But that was already when my father left. My father left when I was seven years old in the first grade. That incident happened when I was fifth grade of elementary school. And it is now not unique. That happened quite often, uh, and not only to, to me, but to my friends from my school, if they were outspoken or they they didn't like something. And please remember that there was a I was living in totalitarian police state. There were police patrol walking on the streets, and they can detain anybody. They can stop anybody. And actually, they were doing it. So when you walk on the street, you had to be prepared that you either had a school ID or like adults over 18 years old, they had to have an entire book, booklet with all the information about it. That book is called in Polish was Dowód Osobisty, like personal document that you have to carry on you all the time. And if you didn't have it, they can detain you until they clear who you are. That booklet contained information like who your parents were their names, where they were born, both parents, then uh, every place you ever worked in Poland that was there, your place of uh, where you live. If there was no, if it didn't have a valid stamp, you could be detained. So that's that's how socialist state works because they are afraid of people. They have to do this to stay in power. Otherwise people would hang them from the latter posts. This is how much they hated them in Poland. Yeah. Show me your papers. Yeah. What, uh, what, uh, did your parents and grandparents tell you stories about world war two? Were you, uh, aware of, um, world war two in that that history? Yes. But you know, remember that at that time, the history in Poland was very twisted, was twisted towards the socialist state and ideology. Like we never knew that Polish eagle had a crown on it. That, that was always like, no, we never had a crown. Uh, yes, Polish eagle had a crown and the Bolsheviks came, kidnapped him and sent him to Siberia. He brought their eagle without the crown. So like Poles never accepted this uh, as a Polish symbol, symbol of Poland. But there was, so it, same with the Second World War history. They was... Everything that came from Soviet Union was exponated. How brave these people are, how brave these warriors fighting on the Russian side were. Now, today we know they were alcoholics, they were terrorized by uh, NKVD and uh, the, the, the precursor of KGB, and, and they were just doing what the Russian told them to do. So there, there was really the, not much substance but they were making it so big. On the another side, Poland had, a, during Second World War, the most powerful, the most the, the, the uh, underground movement, underground army in entire Europe. Uh, we didn't hear anything about it because after the Second World War, these people became inconvenient. So the secret services and uh, uh, NKVD working hand to hand with NKVD were hunting them down and killing them. 
they murdered so many of these heroes from the Second World War that even today they are still cannot find some of their graves. There are people still looking at it. And uh, this, because of the social, the way the socialist state works, uh, even like I think last time it was maybe six, eight months ago or nine months ago when Poles found another mass grave of uh, uh, opponents of socialism in Poland. So those are at that time there was the, the those people were killed. Some of them were killed quietly; they just disappeared. And some of them, after the show trials, were executed in, uh, in, in Polish prisons. So that's how socialism works. Yeah. But Second World War, what I didn't know is the entire Western side, and the, the, because Polish had a, their own, Poland had their own government on the exile in England, uh, in Great Britain. So we didn't hear about it much. There was always, uh, if, if in schools, in history classes, they ever said anything about West and Polish soldiers fighting as, uh, along the Allies in the West, it was very negative. They were all, uh, according to my history books, spies, bandits, and murderers. But please remember that, like, for example, the Squadron 303, the, the, the flying hurricane from England during the Battle of Britain was the most effective fighter squadron in entire uh, uh, England at the time. Uh, but we, never, we didn't know about it because yeah. the, the, the socialists will twist the history and anything that do not support their narrative is going to be tuned out, monuments will be, will be taken down, books will be rewritten, and images cropped and fixed. And that, that's the history that I learned in Poland when I was growing up. Of course, it changed later when I was arrested for political activities and went to prison, where I met other activists, solidarity activists, opposition, people with uh, opposing socialism mm -hmm. in Poland. And then I started educating myself. I started learning. So the prison for me was not really so much punishment, although I got beat up. There quite often by the guards, but uh, but it was for me there was a school. It was school of uh, of life too, because you know, um, like for me, I was a young kid. I was twenty one years old when I was sentenced to uh, uh, three years of prison for distributing anti-socialist, anti-communist propaganda and produce, producing the leaflets and the bulletins outside of the censorship. So they. Uh, it was just, uh, for me, again, it was more like adventure almost. Right? But please remember that when I, was in, when I was in prison, they were sitting with me, people from universities, professors, doctors, engineers, and uh, they knew the real history of Poland. They knew the situation in Poland. So for me, that prison became more like the education, educational camp. <laughs> I would say that way. But yeah. these people are heroes because please remember, like with me, I didn't have a family. So if something happened, I mean, life would go on. But now with me in prison, we're sitting people married with children. And one day they were just, their house was raided. The, the parents or parent was uh, snatched from the house in prison and they didn't know if they will see them again 
Because at that time, none of us was sure if we will live long enough to 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 survive that uh, uh, uprising, and we didn't know if they didn't send us to into Soviet Union because it was another popular method of communists and socialists in Poland. Mm-hmm. Inconvenient people were sent to Soviet Union or expelled from Poland, but most of the time they went to Siberia and to Soviet Union. So yeah, we, we, we didn't know it. And these people were still standing by their values. These people were still standing by their uh, ideals. And this is very important because, uh, uh, again, for me, that was not that difficult. But for them, the easier would be maybe to give in and say, hey, you know what? Okay, I will not do anything anymore. Just let me out. No, these people say, I'm, I know I have family. I know I have children. But this is so much more important, more, maybe not important, but this is such important thing that we're not going give to give in. We're not going to change our views and we're not going to collaborate with socialists and communists. These are heroes of the time. These are, these are heroes for me, because again, even the, and we know that socialist state, the communists with that power, they were intimidating and harassing their families. So people were sitting in prison. They were going after their families and harassing them and intimidating. And these people endured that and didn't change their mind. I describe in my book at the very end, there's a chapter, Spirit of Polish People. And one of the defenders is a friend of mine, Andrew Krasuski. When most of us defenders, uh, defending ourselves from socialist state, we had our stories like with, with me and with my group, we just say we didn't do it and, and prove it. So they, they really couldn't prove it, but it really doesn't, it doesn't matter in socialist state, so, socialist totalitarian oppressive state. But this guy, that Andrew Krasuski, he refused to defend himself. He just started schooling and laying the truth to judges, to court, to people. I described this conversation, one of his conversation with judge. And please remember, if in 1960s and 70s, those people would be executed, would be killed. And we didn't know how they will react this time. Andrew Krasuski didn't change his mind. And I would like to make one point here too, because, you know, like I'm, I'm reading some of the articles about me and uh, some of the... Uh, uh, talking, and sometimes people get confused and they say, well, Drago was sitting in Russian prison in Gulag. Uh, so to make it clear, Poland the, uh, had political prisoners. We, like my mom, sometimes she called it Gulag. She, oh, I'm going to Gulag to, 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 to see my son. But technically, they were not Gulags. They were, poly, they were prisons. And in 1940s, 50s, they were run with uh, support of the NKVD and Russian police and Russian prison uh, officials. But again, they were not gulags. Uh, they were just po- political prisoners, uh, political prisons for people like me. And um, so just to make it clear, yeah, no, I- no, the gulags, they were not in Poland, but the yep. uh, system was very similar and, and treatment was... Uh, uh, somewhat similar, maybe we just refused to work. And like gulags, there were labor camps in Poland. We didn't have a labor camps. The political prisoners refused to work, so uh, we would not give in anything to these 
prison guards and pr- and prison system in Poland. And we fought it. Now we, a lot of people lost their teeth and life, sometimes life, but we didn't give in. Yeah, I want to ask you about the hunger strike and, and being in prison and what led up to that. But I love how you said, I hadn't heard that term before, inconvenient people. So I wrote that, I wrote that down. That was very interesting. Inconvenient people people uh, getting shipped off to, to prison. Um, when did you learn about Captain, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong here, uh, Pilecki in World War II? When did you find out about what he did? Uh, Captain Pilecki. Pilecki. Yeah, I find out, I learned about him in prison. Mm. We didn't know anything. He is a Polish hero. He, is, uh, he was participating in the September War, then in uh, Warsaw, later on in Warsaw Uprising, but before that, he was very active in underground Polish underground army opposing uh, uh, Hitler's and and his uh, military. So he was fighting them, and uh, at one point he actually volunteered to be caught by Gestapo and sent to uh, Auschwitz to concentration camp because on the west at the time people just did not believe or some did not know about the atrocities uh, committed by Germany, Adolf Hitler's Germany at the time in Poland. So his task was to go infiltrate the concentration camp uh, and send out the reports from there. For me, that's suicide. I mean, you don't don't come out of concentration camp uh, uh, the same person if you come out at all. He volunteered for that. He went there. He wrote the reports. He helped organize the movement in, uh, in uh, uh, the in, within the concentration camp. But once the reports were received in the West, he escaped. He had, uh, there was a network that helped him. He was able to escape. So for me, I, I, I mean, I cannot even imagine somebody volunteer to go to concentration camp and hoping that maybe he will be able to escape. But it was Captain Pilecki, Witold Pilecki. He did that. And what happened to him next, he became, when, when Russians brought socialism on their bayonets to Poland after the Second World War, he, was, he became a very inconvenient person for socialism and communists. He knew the West. He knew how the West works. And people like this were dangerous. At least they were deemed dangerous by communists like my father. So after a short trial with fake, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, I think the charge was espionage, that he was spying for the West, for Great Britain, for uh, U- United States, and he was sentenced to death. Uh, that was a huge, big show trial going on at the time. But then qu- they quietly just uh, killed him with a shot to bag of his head in the prison. That's how they deal with it. Today, Poles still cannot find his grave. They are looking for it. As they are looking for his grave, they are finding many other mass graves of socialist regime. So again, uh, uh, to please understand that I hope that some people, that a lot of people will understand the distinction. Poland was never a socialist state because here I, uh, at home, I hear often that, well, Communism was bad. Look at Poland, look at the Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and Soviet Union. Communism is bad, but socialism is good. Well, that's, let me just spell it out. The 
the, the neither of the countries, none of the countries behind Iron Curtain was ever so communist country. They were all socialist states run by communists, ardent communists like my father. So that was, uh, that's, that's, I hope and make it clear, especially for those people here enamorated with socialism. And by the way, I hear sometimes, well, socialism, this is where we build, the, the government builds the roads, government gives, sets up the schools. Well, if that's socialism, then Pakistan would be socialist state and Saudi Arabia would be Pakistan, uh, would, be so, would be socialist state. The Morocco would be socialist state. We know they are not. But, you know, by that standard, but this is how perverted it is. This is how the, the, the way they sell the very dangerous ideology to people. Well, socialism is just building roads. No, it's not. I mean, look in the history, and the people need to look in the history and read about the socialist states behind Iron Curtain, the repression, the murders, and and uh, and oppression. Mm-hmm. And your mom was anti-communist, anti-socialist to the kids, and your dad was a member of the Communist Party and didn't want to hear that. Um, so you have you have these two influences up until age seven at, at least. And yeah. I think your mom was a teacher and your dad was a, a teacher and then did th- some worked in a theater and museums. Pro- yeah. Professor. He, yes. And then he moved into political, uh, once he started progressing within the communist party mm. in Poland and eventually he became full-time apparatchik and, uh, an ardent communist. But yes, you're right. You, you remind me of because what my grandmother, so his mom, was teaching me how to pray. I don't remember how old I was. Maybe I was like three years old because I think I could barely, I didn't know how to pray. So there's like, for me, it was like a little poetry that I had to learn certain words. Right. And and we always, my grandmother told me, get on your knees, put your hands, put your hands together. And now I pray with my grandmother, his mom, my father's mother. And so every time we end our prayer, the first thing that we asked was, God, please take this, communist evils, like this communist devil murderers out of Poland. Please make Poland free again. And I didn't know much. I didn't know what the communist was being three years old. But when she said devil and evil, I was like my, my ears perhaps so grandma is that to me, those communist communists, do they have horns, tail, do they breathe fire? Mm. <laughs> I didn't know it. But um, so that was my question. But my father actually he overheard one time that when my my grandmother was praying with me and teaching me how to pray, and he went ballistic. I mean, he he yelled at her. She cried, but he told her that if she, if he uh, if she says anything negative about socialism and communism that he's trying to build so hard, uh, she will never see us again. She, she we will never come up there. So um, my grandmother, I remember she was crying. She, she, she was upset that he was involved with, uh, with Communist Party. She didn't like it. She knew how, and I described it in my book, but you know, what could you do at the time? Really nothing. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's something too, what it strikes me now when I look at those times from certain distance now, uh, you know, people sometimes ask, how uh, Germany allowed themselves to fall into the Hitler, Hitler's ideology, Hitler's thinking, follow him, implement the Holocaust, 
uh, euthanasia, accept euthanasia. Well, not everybody did, but those who didn't, then you have not, they, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't say anything because they could end up in concentration camps. So in Poland, it was the same thing. Every totalitarian system, every totalitarian country will find a way to suppress its citizens. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it is done with terror because eventually people get so much fed up with it. And that same thing happened in Adolf Hitler's socialist Germany, National Socialist Germany. Same thing happened in Poland, Socialist Poland. Same thing happened in Socialist Soviet Union. Well, that Soviet Union went all the way to way out of the, uh, of the scale, murdering own citizens. And again, please, the, the, the one of the characteristics of socialism is the warfare on own citizens. Mm. This is something that they have to instill the terror, they have to uh, uh, police the, uh, the uh, citizens and do not allow them to speak or think freely. So uh, like in Poland, the more depravity is thrown on society, the easier is to govern it. The more divided society is, the easier to govern it uh, for them. And this is why in Poland, there was divisions. There were rich people, there were less rich people, there were intelligentsia, there were workers, physical workers. Actually, in your uh, personal document, it was stated if you are part of intelligentsia or if you are a physical worker. And then if your parents too, that book contained also information if your parents came from intelligentsia family or from physical workers family. So imagine that. That's just like, uh, that's socialism. Yeah. Do you remember during that time period um, or before or after what uh, the gun laws were in Poland? Was uh, was it only police, military, or if you were a member of the Communist Party at a certain level, could you have a firearm and register a gun? What were the, do you remember anything about gun laws? Well, I haven't seen the gun until I was like 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, when the police pulled the guns on me, but uh, um, but in Poland, and I think this is why people were so terrorized because they have no means to fight back. Nobody had the guns; they were forbidden. If you had a gun, if they could, if, if socialist regime caught you in, uh, with the gun in 1940s and 50s, you could be executed on the spot. They can try to take you in the police station and kill you. That was, this is how bad it was. You could not have the gun. If you had a gun, you were a villain. You were, the, you were the insurgent. You tried to overthrow the government. And there's every single time, you know, like every, every time somebody was talking about bread, I want to have more bread. I want to have food. I want to have more freedom. They were always branded insurgents, terrorists, trying to overthrow the, the elected socialist government. And we know... Now, I knew before, but we know now that all these elections were fraud. They were fraudulent elections because otherwise they would never stay in power. People were sick, were sick and tired of these socialists. They would hang them from the latter posts. They were ready to do so. Yeah. And in the book, you talk about taking newspaper and stuffing them under your clothes to give you some little insulation yeah. um, to stay warm. And um, I mean, it's in incredible the way you describe growing up there. But uh, so I, I really want everyone to read this. Service isn't just what Navy Federal Credit Union does. It's who they are. That's why Navy Federal created tools to help you earn and save more. Make your financial goals a reality with great rates and low fees. Members enjoy earnings and savings of $473 per year by banking with Navy Federal. 
an average credit card APR that's 6% lower than the industry average. A market-leading regular savings rate nearly two times the industry average. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash offers. I've been a member of Navy Federal since I enlisted in the Navy in 1996 and have had nothing but positive experiences with them for what is now closing in on 30 years. Wherever we were stationed, whether at home or abroad, Navy Federal was by our side. Navy Federal has made it their mission to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. With their new no-refi rate drop option, you can buy a home now. And if rates drop later, you can then lower your rate without refinancing. Plus, they also offer mortgage options with zero down payment. So you don't need to wait years to save at Navy Federal. Our members are the mission. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender, open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. NavyFederal.org. But also at some point you find boxing and martial arts. How do you, how does that, how does that come into play? Uh, yeah, you know, so, so when my father left, I learned very quickly that violence works. Violence always works. If it didn't work for you, it means you did not apply enough of it. So as a kid, first I was bullying kids, then I was being bullied. But for me, I find out very quickly that carrying a steel pipe in my bookcase uh, was kind of very helpful. And very quick, the, uh, like a, uh, the, the news spread that people that follow me inside the uh, apartment, because there was huge apartments. So we have like one common entry. So people who tried to hire me and follow me there, uh, they didn't come out. So usually the ambulance show up. Uh, so that's another thing that I learned very quick. And then I had the opportunity actually to uh, sign up for the, I didn't know about that it was a police club at the time, but it was a boxing club. So I said, well, I'm going to sign up. I think I'm good with it. I, I like to fight. So, and I did extremely well. The, the, I didn't have a father, but the trainer, the, the, the coach, he he sees something in me and I wanted to appease him. So I was beating these people even harder <laughs> because uh, I wanted him to be proud of me. And, uh, and uh, you know, like the one time when I was sick, he came to my home, asked me if I am okay. And I remember it was so unusual. I was so taken by it that somebody come and ask about me if I'm okay. So that was very, very, uh, so I, I was even, I was beating these people people even harder I mean on in the in the, in the gym so so he really liked me but um, you know then I moved to um, I moved to Warsaw then I came back I got kicked out by my father uh, from Warsaw so I signed up for karate Kyokushinkai Kyokushin and this is where I started learning martial arts so com this combined with boxing uh, pretty much made me untouchable on the street and uh, I went to town with it. Uh, and this is how I started my uh, you know, tra training. But also, uh, even before that, when I was carrying the pipe, I remember I learned very quickly too that um, member, the children of party members 
they had a, such a nice food because they had the separate stores like mm. where they can parents can go and buy things that was not available to Poles, mm. so, uh, regular Poles, Poly, regular Polish people. So I'll, I remember one time I lost it because when I was going to school, I was my mom most of the time put some little bit tea and on my bread and sprinkle with sugar. Or sometimes we didn't have a tea, then put some water. Mm. So I was okay. I mean, I didn't know any better. But uh, when I seen these sandwiches in these party members' kids, are they one day I lost it. I just woke up to one of those kids. I took his sandwich, I bite it. It's like, it tastes so good. I was like thinking, okay, so that's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, you're going to bring two sandwiches. <laughs> one for me, one for you. You bring one. He ain't eating. So, <laughs> so he said, what did my mom, what did my mom tell me? Well, I said, this is what I, I was, I didn't know any better, but my mom always tell me, I know it's maybe not very tasty, but you need to eat because you need to be strong and you are growing. So I said, well, tell your parents that you are growing and you really have appetite. Mm. You have a huge appetite and you need two sandwiches. So yeah, he was bringing me sandwiches. I was never hungry at school after that. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're just dealing with it the best we could. My brother learned how to make uh, French fries. So basically, a b- bunch of potatoes, you just cut up in pieces, he throw it in the grease and, and he had, he had the, uh, French fries. Uh, my sister was doing something else, so, but I was just robbing rich kids <laughs> from sandwiches. Oh, and it When did you start listening to um, Voice of America, BBC, Radio Free Europe? When, what, what age do you start listening to those and, and how are you listening to those? So what happened is my uncle, he had his own business. He opened his own business. He was making bricks, bricks and uh, cedar blocks. And he was doing so well that he was start competing with other little factories run by communist party members. So he was became the competition and people refused to buy from communist party members. They were coming to him to buy the material, building materials. So they sent those. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know anything about those radios, right? The radio stations. I just knew my uncle was beat up and was attacked his business destroyed by those anti-fascist groups in Poland. They call themselves anti-fascists, anti-Nazis, and everybody, they they didn't like it. They just brought him fascist and Nazi. So my uncle was fascist and Nazi because he was running good business. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they they went, first they gave him warning that he needs to scale down with uh, with his factory, with his production. But he said, well, like he explained that he cannot because he won't he won't be able to survive uh, because you know he had our own factory, but those are still poor. It's not like today. If you have some successful business, you actually you can live well uh, up there. Whatever business you have, successful or not, you are still under the boot of socialist oppression. And so my father told them no. So they sent these young kids from from colleges, from uh, factories, uh, indoctrinated. Some of them were just paid for. Um, uh, and they went to his factory and destroyed everything. So he, he rebuilt it. They went again, but this time they beat him up. And then uh, and destroyed his. So the third time he rebuilt it, they beat him up. They destroyed things. When he went to police, the police arrest, they arrested him as a 
Nazi element and fascists, they beat him up and even more and sent him home. And he was so bitter about it. He said, well, you know, I wasn't trying, not, I was not trying to fight this oppressive totalitarian socialism, but I have no choice now. I'm, I'm, I'm full against these people. And he will start teaching me to where to find information about history, Polish history, where to listen, what are radio stations to listen. So like BBC, um, the uh, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe. So we'll listen, I'll, I'll listen to it, but please remember at the time, you could go to prison for listening these, to these stations and government, the socialist uh, uh, totalitarian government went to great length to drown these radio stations. So there were antennas built around the Warsaw Pact countries mm. that, are the, 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 that provided the sound and the, tried to drown. On the, we're working the same frequency with Radio Free Europe was working. So you couldn't hear or you could hardly hear anything. To hear anything from these radios, like in my case, I would have to make it fairly loud to go to, to kind of uh, listen over these uh, uh, how to say it, that sound that the, the socialist government was sending over the waves. So it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you can hear a little voice coming out in the background. So you have to make it pretty loud. And that's just panic my mom, I remember. So I was told that for me, if I want to listen to it, I have to have like 10 or 15 pillows. I mean, we didn't have that many, but blankets, pillows, anything she, she, she could find. She piled on me so I can listen because we didn't know who our neighbors were. You can have a great neighbor, but a lot of people at the time were snitching and working for the secret uh, state police. So um, so my mom was afraid because if they caught me doing this, um, I could go to orphanage. They could take us away and uh, they, they, uh, they could arrest my mom. Uh, I still remember that conversation at school in the fifth grade when I kind of piped up that I don't want to learn Russian language. They told us that, you know, this is, um, if she doesn't instill more love to socialists, they will, the, the government will take care of uh, her kids, that means us, and the government will teach us the proper way to love and enjoy socialism. Yeah. And um, so, so yeah, my mom was afraid, but this is how I was listening to it. This is where I started learning more also about the Polish history, what the real Polish history was, uh, the real Polish hero. And uh, that, was, that was the first time that I learned that Polish ace from second, uh, from the Battle of Britain, mm -hmm. top, score, top scoring Polish ace within the Polish uh, uh, fighting squadron, fighter squadrons, uh, after returning to Poland, was arrested and sentenced to death. He spent four years on the, uh, I think four years, on the death row waiting to be executed. And as he's seen more and more people from his cell being led and executed, he was afraid too. And but he didn't change his mind. He didn't change. He didn't comply. And eventually, the West find out that he's sitting on the uh, uh, death row. Winston Churchill uh, people and uh, and from the United States, uh, the request came and that he will be free, that they release him. That he was eventually, that his death sentence was commuted, I believe, to 25 years prison, and eventually he was released after the uh, uh, Stalin death, I think. Man. 
So it's incredible, you know, some of these stories. Yeah. I never thought about it much, but good God, now I'm looking at, I'm living in free country. I'm living in a beautiful country with life values, that life is of value. And I'm looking back and it's like, how did I, how people survived that? But please remember, Poland today is a free country, has free elected government. And, you know, they have their own problems. They have, they, uh, they squabble still, political squabbles, but it is free. You know, people don't, are not looking mm. over their shoulder to say something, you know, to prison for it. Yeah. Um, and because that, this is the one of the first indication that you are living in totalitarian system, totalitarian terror state, when they can arrest you for speaking your mind, when they can arrest you for being in opposite, for opposing uh, uh the the, domino, the the primary political party or yeah put you to jail if they deem you too dangerous to to uh, to oppose them you know it's if you go they will arrest you they will denigrate you there is actually technique uh, I wrote in my book about it uh, there's kind of funny story because they uh, there was a book about FBI showed up in Poland it was printed by the communist government. Uh, by people like my father. When they describe the technique, they call it a cancellation. And so people, they were inconvenient for socialist state, but they were not really, uh, they couldn't, they were well known. They were well known as a good citizen, good good citizens, good people. So the government could not just go, sometimes they did, but sometimes they try to like, isolate this person, so mm. not to kill the person, not to put in prison, just remove that, that person's influence from society. So the secret police, their agents, those anti, uh, anti-fascist guys, they were spreading like rumors that, well, that person, this, uh, this hero from Second World War, he's a pedophile, or he's this, or he's a thief. And, you know, that person, they didn't know about it, but suddenly around his circles, they start growing this uh, this type of uh, uh, discontent, this kind of like dislike of him. And he, that person, that family never knew what hit them, but it was that one of the techniques that uh, police secret police used. But it was described in that book that FBI was using that technique here in the United States. People were laughing at it, like nobody believed that. That's like no way. But they, what what this book allowed them is to to take look, get insight a little bit how the police, secret police, the secret services are working. And they were actually very smart people. They were able to pinpoint some of those rumor spreaders and actually isolate them from the society to the point that even the secret uh, state police didn't want to touch them because like well. If these people are so uh, compromised that if we are around them, we'll be, we will look really bad too. Oh. So basically those snitches were left on their own because they were, thanks to this book, it helped them to identify some of these snitches. So yeah, that's, that's kind of funny stuff. Yeah. Oh man. And do you remember the uh, 1979 visit by Pope John Paul? Were you, uh, were you oh, aware yes. of it at the time? And then were you aware of the significance? Could you feel that? Or what was that, uh, what was that like? Yes. Yes. So please remember in 1970, especially late 1970s, the Polish society was so uh, 
how to say the right or the right word. They just did not believe anything that communist governments say. Mm. If communist governments say one thing, people knew that this has to be the opposite. Mm. That's that, that's how it is. And that was so bad that uh, just people didn't have a means, didn't have an idea maybe how to resist that socialist oppression mm. until John Paul II show up. And this is where people finally start enough is enough. We're hungry, we are poor. We need. We can do better than that. We need to challenge communists. And um, but please remember too that propaganda, the fake news media in Poland at the time, they portrayed a visit as a nothing special, nothing, nothing unusual. There was just a mm-hmm. dude showed up, and ten people show up to his meeting, and and that was it. And if you look at today in the the the, the videos of uh, uh, from Poland from that time, the official government videos, you will see very few people mm-hmm. just pop speaking like to nobody. There's like few people there, and so the, the perception that that, that communists try to create is that nobody support these ideas of freedom, ideas of uh, of what Pope has to say. They say we have a socialist freedom. That's plenty, and then that was it. Until uh, the communism fell in Eastern Europe, you can see those meetings with Pope. Millions were coming in. Mm. Their entire city blocks, not just the stadium, the entire city blocks around the stadiums, stadiums taken by millions of people, thousands, thousands, millions of people. You can see it now. It's so inspiring. But we didn't know that because the fake news media was portraying like nobody cares. And, mm. and But that was such an inspiring for people that eventually they revolt. They built the first in entire Eastern Bloc organization that was independent from Communist Party. It never happened before. So there was big eyes. There was big eyes in communist uh, in communist eyes. Like my father, actually, my father was very adamant about it. He says that it, that we, the communist party, needs to compel people to like socialism and love socialism and communism. And if they don't, if they resist, means they are anti-Polish. Everything that was against communism, against the oppression was very quickly turned by communists into anti-Polish. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, I want bread. I, 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 don't, I cannot buy bread for two days. Well, you are anti-Polish. You, are, you, you, you try to disrupt and overthrow Polish government. That was dangerous. That were dangerous time because the, if government wanted to push it further, they could. And there's many people in prison who uh, at the time uh, just for, for opposing the socialism. It was that easy for government for government to do it. But people were inspired. So they built this powerful trade union. It was called Solidarity, Solidarność in Polish. Mm-hmm. And uh, that trade union, within a short time, became, became a social movement. One third of Polish adult population belonged to it. Another third supported it. This is how powerful idea can be. Yeah. And communists, they could, they could kill individuals, and they did. 
but they could not kill millions. Well, it happened under another communist state in Cambodia, but here, no. So they couldn't do it. So they tried, they were preparing, they started preparing a martial law. They started creating lists, lists of people to be arrested. And under the guise of talking to, stalling the, the, the negotiations, um, they were preparing the martial law in December 13, 1980, one that was imposed. And it was, I remember, it was at midnight, um, at, at midnight on December 13, when all TV stations, all telephones, radios, radio stations went black. And like, we already knew that something is going to happen. And um, that, then people start coming to our solidarity headquarters saying that this this family was arrested, that family was arrested. So basically the raids on Polish people by communists started uh, right before, shortly before midnight, mm. according, and by the list, in entire Poland, they went house to house, or pulling people from the list and arresting them. Now, <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the government at the time, the communist government, which my father was part of it, was very quick to come out and say, no, 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 there's nothing to worry. We just, we didn't arrest these people. They were just interned. Interned means they can just leave uh, in some small isolation, but uh, we just did it for them, for their protection and to protect Poland. How, how would you do that? I mean, that's such a joke. So it infuriated people even more. But this is how they brand these, uh, how they call the poly first political prisoners uh, on the, such a mass scale in Poland, uh, internees. So they were not prisoners. They were sitting in prisons, but, uh, but they were not prisoners. They were internees. So the next wave, the, so the estimation is that from advice, from 6,000, 7,000 people, 25,000 people up to 60,000 people arrested in one night. So I was swept in the second wave. So after they arrested thousands of people that one night, well, people who were opposing, who were not as important as they, the, the first wave, they were being swept. And at that time, me and my friends decided to publish a I wouldn't call it even newspaper, it was a bulletin. Mm. It was a leaflet that we also, once we printed it, we were passing to people on the street because we didn't know how to do it. This is not the way to, to do, the right way to do it. <laughs> you try to hide yourself from oppressive terror, terrorist government. But we didn't know it. So we're just printing it out and passing to people. And it was a matter of time before we get caught. But <clears throat> so these people like me were branded criminals. Um, that was not that I was political prisoner because I was just writing what really happened in my city, mm. what, what, what took place in my city, or like my my recollection of the events. Uh, no, that was uh, uh, that was enough to put you in prison. But I broke the law. Uh, please remember, in socialist states like Cuba, Poland, Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, uh, some of them are no longer in socialist states. They uh, the the web, the law is weaponized. This is why I hear often, why didn't you just vote these communists and socialists out? You can't, you cannot. 
because they set the law, once they get to power, that is almost impossible to challenge them. If you do, you become, you break some law that they put in place for to, to put you in prison. So if you are an inconvenient citizen, most likely you end up in prison. And some of those political prisoners, if they couldn't prove anything, they were sitting for, like one of the guys I met, uh, he was sitting in prison for stealing milk. It's like, well, how you steal the mail? I mean, like, did you? No, I said, I didn't steal the mail. I was printing newspaper, but it was, there's so many people sitting in prison for printing newspapers and speaking out against socialism that now they are finding other ways to put us in prison. So they told me that I stole the milk. <laughs> so he got like three years, three years prison sentence. I met him later in the, in the United States too. So, oh, wow. Um, he, he escaped. Uh, but this is how a socialist state treats citizens. They have to have this oppression that weaponize law, weaponize state entities and police uh, to keep a society in check, to prevent uh, from ever being challenged and voted out. So all the vote, vote the, the, the elections are rigged, are fraudulent. And um, that's what, uh, but those are the symptoms of totalitarian terror. State. Yeah. Did you have your smuggling ring at this point? When do you have your uh, your smuggling ring? Uh, when does that come in? Uh, that was before. Yeah, that was before that. Yeah. So we were very poor, and like you mentioned earlier, like I don't even have a clothes, good winter clothes. My father refused to pay. Actually, this story because my mother she was crying because we didn't have a warm clothes. So she asked my sister to go and ask father to buy us maybe coats for winter or maybe increase the, alimo, the, the the child support that he was paying. Well, he just talked about that uh, to get out because uh, uh, my, this is my mother's responsibility to provide the coat, coats and winter clothes for us. And court already told him how much he can he should pay and he's not going to pay penny more. So yeah, that was not very helpful, but that's how my father was. And uh, so, I was wearing those, yeah, like you say earlier, the newspapers in my clothes to stay warm. But uh, we figured out that, hey, you know what? Well, let's be millionaires. We can be millionaires. We just decided we can do it. We found like a prostitute who was actually involved with a lot of foreigners at the time in Poland. So he knew, she knew some, some ways how to smuggle things and what to do, what to sell, where to sell. So we were picking her brain and uh, and eventually we decided, how well, we're going to go smuggle our, uh, our own products. So we purchased a bunch of jeans, uh, Levi's, and uh, in, oh, good God. You know, it, like, in, you could not just travel to, so to Soviet Union. The plan was to go to Soviet Union, sell the jeans, buy the fur hats, like the Russian fur hats, smuggle that to Romania. In Romania, uh, sell the fur hats and... Uh, Sometimes there was a good idea to buy the cigarettes, smuggle them to Bulgaria, and then back. And just every time you do that, that transaction, you make more money. So when we came up there, but we didn't know how to do it. So we lost our merchandise to border guards almost on every border. So we didn't do well, but it was still okay. It was still good <laughs> enough. But I remember trying to get in the train the, from uh, uh, go, going to... To Soviet Union, to Russia at the time, and uh, 
I couldn't get in the train because I had like maybe eight pairs of jeans on me. I was wearing it because you couldn't just carry it. So I had to wear it. So they had to shove me up the stairs to the train so I can <laughs> <laughs> I can get in it. So, so yeah, we were doing this, but we didn't know what we really what really we we should do. Some people made fortunes doing it. Well, we didn't. I'm like, for example, we went to, uh, eventually we made to Romania where we sold the fur hats from Russia and our task was to buy the leather coats. I didn't know anything about leather coats. I couldn't tell the leather from plastic. So, and the, so I purchased one that I thought was a good deal but I didn't have much money because we lost a lot going through the borders. So I bought like a girl's coat. So it was a kind of funny looking coat because it was like super tight here and up to my, supposed to be at your waist, turning into like a nice spread, like a skirt. And, but I was bigger at the time. So that, that coat, when I put this coat on, I look like a pervert. I look like a tranny. <laughs> tranny. And people were laughing at it, but you could not sell. So when we smuggled that coat back to Russia to sell it, you cannot carry that stuff with you because the police will snag you. You cannot do business like this. So we had to wear it. So my friends sold pretty quick what they had. Me with this funny looking coat. And on the top of it turned out to be as a horse's leather. I didn't know anything about it. So nobody wanted to buy it. And then eventually a uh, bunch of like, these Russian thugs, they tried to uh, steal it from me. There is a trick that they have. So they just take, you know, to make the transaction, you cannot do it on the street. You wear the coat and uh, you go to the, like a gate, gated uh, building or somewhere where it's, you feel more secure and you can make this exchange. But I already knew what they what they tried to do. So there's a trick that they have like a bunch of new. Uh, I asked for 350 rubles, so the, I think it was 350 or something like this. So they count 400 rubles. They count it, and they give you the money, but it's less than like significantly less than what you asked for. So what do you do? You just say, "Hey, look, this is when you count, you say, "No, that's not enough." So the next thing, the guy will turn to another guy, say, "Hey." Uh, let's count it. So he counts you the money that you say is short. He turns to another guy. Yeah, you're right. This guy is, is right. Give me 30 more rubles here so he'll be okay. So uh, the guy pulls up and counts the 30 rubles. As soon as you take your eyes to see what this guy is counting, that, that first guy who has, has you the original money, he flips it. And now you have a bunch of newspapers with just uh, uh, money on the top mm. and the bottom, but it's mostly newspaper. Mm. And, and then you take money from one, then you take the money from another, and they yell, please, please, we need to run. Everybody runs, and you are you are left with without the merchandise, with with newspapers in your hand. But wow. it, I, I was prepared. I knew what it was, so I knocked them out before <laughs> they had a chance to count. Because for me, you know, $350, I'm about to lose everything because nobody wanted to buy that code. So I said, well, 350 is good. <laughs> so wow. I knocked them out and ran, ran away. And, uh, but I was, uh, yeah, I was scared because they, night before they killed another smuggler up there from Poland. So I was like, well, I'm, I might be next. Wow. And uh, I was late to the train to Poland. I was thinking like, well, I describe in the book, but it's kind of a funny story, but it was it. I was like, we decide 
we are not good smokers. <laughs> We're not gonna make millions doing it. So there was there was end of it. And then I went to uh, got involved in Solidarity Trade Union. Mm-hmm. My mom was involved, and there was martial law imposed, imposed, and uh, and then I was arrested and went to prison. What was the? For, uh, uh, they, did they arrest you at night during the day? Did they get you at home? Did they get you on the street? What, how, what was the? Uh, what were the circumstances around your physical arrest? So we uh, we we printed at night. Uh, the little bulletin, it was like a leaflets, two pages leaflets. And uh, so we met usually around like 10, 11 o'clock in this apartment. And we had a press up there and a typing machine. Well, just having a typing machine, you could go, if it was not registered, you could go to prison in Poland. So they, uh, they, they were printing this. This is where we were printing it. And I remember one night that we were about to print another batch of these newspapers. As I'm walking there, down the street, I see somebody kind of look funny behind me. And I had that feeling that something is not right, but these guys were waiting for me. I had to go and do my job. So I went there, I knocked on the door and uh, the door didn't open, but the, the, the downstairs and upstairs door, doors open and the police and the secret service just run out with the secret, not secret service, secret state police run out with the guns drawn. And I had a gun pointing in, every, in my head from every direction almost. It's like that weird ambush we talk sometimes about. And uh, yeah, they just handcuffed me. They pulled me into the department, throw me on the ground. And they were waiting for more people. So I was laying there for quite a few hours uh, with the guy with, sitting uh, and, uh, with the boots on my back. And uh, I got retired. But eventually nobody showed up. Uh, they they just called my ass to the, head, to the headquarters of uh, state secret police, and that's where I, uh, where my uh, journey to prisons in Poland started. Did they? Did you get processed there, and then go to a jail, and then to a prison, or how did that yes. work? Well, the first it started, they, they bring you to this, those interrogation rooms, and uh, and so they had their own uh, secret state police uh, uh, prisons. They are quieters in the basements. And they bring you, like, I remember I was interrogating. At that time, I didn't understand why, what they want. Uh, but I was interrogating every day for like four, five, six, seven hours sometimes at night. And uh, I was to ask the same questions, the same questions. And uh, I didn't know why they asked the same questions. I said, I say that, but they did. It was just very tiring. And uh, that's also when I started learning about prison life. Because um, when I... And this is something that you know we can talk about what the NCIS did to Eddie Gallagher. Um, the same thing was done to me in communist uh, uh, dungeons. Um, so w- what they do, that one of the techniques is to keep a prisoner cold, not freezing to death, but just cold and hungry to undermine his resistance and, and resilience. And this is the way, I, like, I didn't know about it. But you can read actually about these techniques uh, from documents on CIA official website, the CIA.gov. You can find there is a report on the method and tactics being used by the uh, secret uh, Soviet police on prisoners. But as you know, the Polish prisons were run on model from Soviet Union and with Soviet advisors. So, so that uh, so we can read actually about it the techniques, 
But so I was always hungry. I was always thirsty. I was always cold. And I remember the first night when they threw me into cell, there was people sleeping everywhere on the floor. There was like one pedestal in the middle when those biggest guys, they're like those, the strongest guy who could intimidate other prisoners were just laying and sleeping on it. Everybody else would sleep on the floor. So it was dark. I didn't know somebody said, hey, just walk on the wall, find the empty spot, sit down and go to sleep. So when I woke up, there's one of these big bad guys came up and said, like, I'm going to eat your breakfast today. I was already hungry. So I said, fuck, no. I knocked him out. Um, actually, I knocked him out and uh, I, like very carefully left his... I, I wanted to make my mark. I knew that as Polish prisons, you cannot just show weakness. So I lift his upper lip and I kind of like knocking his two front teeth inside and just wiggle them out, pull them out. So I say, and then I ate his breakfast. So I ate my breakfast and I ate his breakfast. He always, he complained that, you know, he's the, supposed to be like the guy from these big gangs in Polish prisons. And he's, they're going to F me up if I, uh, when he shows up up there, once he gets to the regular prison. But I just told him, you know, if he keeps yapping, I will gonna, I will, he will lose the bottom teeth as well. I mean, and <laughs> at that time, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just thinking, like, I was, I was, I, I held he, the, his teeth. And I said, there would be awesome necklace out of it. So I'm going to keep it, hang on to those teeth. When I leave on the, when I come out from, uh, from, uh, uh, from prison, I would have a nice necklace. But well, I lost them one of those searches because they moved me to another prison. I was able to smuggle that to another prison, but then eventually another prison they found it. They asked me, whose teeth are those? I'm like, what teeth? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> well, that was funny. How uh, uh, how many years did they? Yeah, how many years did they sentence you to, or did you even know? Three, uh, uh, no, I had a three years prison sentence. Three years I would like to come back to it one more thing too, because at that time I was not afraid of people. Because since a kid, I was beating them up, starting with a steel pipe, then I was doing like, boxing, uh, then Tiakushinkai uh, karate, and then I moved into taekwondo. In the in the next the, the city that we moved in Lodz, we actually um, were training on people. So in Poland at the time, because uh, there was not far away from Second World War. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, I was born 15 years after Second World War. So the memory was still fresh. So people were still afraid. So when I was growing up, the violence was normal. It was nothing unusual. Mm-hmm. People were fighting on the street. And if you see people fighting on the street, what do you do? Just cross the street, go another side, move your way. Uh, and that's, that's how that society worked. Word. There were people drunk laying on the streets, like nobody bothered because mm-hmm. they just drunk. What can you do? And uh, so we decide to be good in taekwondo and, and kickboxing. We start we start training on like bombs on people, and I'm not proud of it now. But you know that was the life I had at the time, and I would I would not allow my son doing it. My mom would not allow me to do that. They didn't know it by this time. I was teenager and so so we were just looking for people on the street and if he would if he would look kind of like a fighter somebody who can kind of fight we just go instigate the fight and just beat him up so one of us was beating him, him up and the rest of uh, our guys were looking and criticizing because we didn't have cameras at the time so mm-hmm. the only way we could do it just you you you, you fight with the guy you beat him up and then your your, your 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 friends, your teammates 
would criticize you. Okay, your kick was not strong enough. Your kick was too low or it was too high. You could do this, you could do that. And the next time you try to improve yourself, so we found another bomb and start fighting with him and, and try to implement all these techniques. And I tell you, we became so good that we could, we didn't want to look for single people. We started looking for like two or three of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so then uh, it was more challenging because just beating out just one person was not a challenge at the time. And um, yeah, but that's that's how when I went to prison, I wasn't really I didn't have any fear of mm-hmm. of these people. So yeah, man. And then in prison, are you working out in prison? Is it uh, do they have a bag or anything I, like that? Yeah. Yeah, we 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 did. Uh, I did. Matter of fact, um, one of the prisoners from uh, also political prisoner, and I wrote about him in the book. Uh, he was the first first solidarity member, politi- first political prisoner I met in prison because until that time I was kept with uh, with with criminals, straight up criminals. Mm. So when I met him, we kind of became really good friends. And he was helping me understand Polish history. Was, his name was Edek Kinjorski. And um, Edward, if you listen to it, uh, cheers. Um, so Edek uh, was really good in the history. He was helping me understand some of the events when it happened in Poland. On the other side, I was teaching him how to fight. And uh, for me, when we met years, uh, years after these events, he says that Mamai saved his life because when he was beating, being beaten by guards, at least he was able to avoid some of those vicious punches and kicks. But uh, so he kind of credits me with maybe saving, possible saving his life during those beatings that he was receiving. And he's not the only one. The other was Andrew Krasuski. Uh, for me, it was like the most versed historian um, and engineer, but so versed in the history. He was actually... Uh, uh, having a classes later in okay. prison uh, about Polish history. So he said the same thing because we were working out together. I was teaching them as much as I could. And, and uh, he says that was very helpful during the beatings that he was receiving from, from communists, from prison guards. And the funny story is too, actually he talks about it. There's an interview with him when the solidarity in Poland is asking him about these events, the reporter. And he said, yeah, there's that, that Thomas was there. And, you know, we were doing this, this, this. Eventually, we got sick and tired. So I told him to kick that fence off. There was a concrete fence. Mm. Well, I, I, I did it twice, actually. So I kicked that in, in prison Hrubyshov. So I kicked that concrete fence. It broke, fell out. We just climbed out of it. Uh, the first time I did it by accident, that was when I was moved from the solidarity, from the, uh, when I was moved from secret uh, uh, state police headquarters to intermediate prison when I was waiting for, awaiting for my sentencing. Mm. So we're walking with maybe 30 by 40 feet uh, cages built out of the, the country slabs. We've seen them in Iraq too very often later. It was like, I think it's common in, in the, uh, around this region. And I just wanted to kick that plate, that's, that, that plate just enough to move it a little bit so I can see in the cracks between the plates. Uh, so I can see if, my, if the partner from my case is there because I thought I heard his voice. So I, say, I just move them a little bit 
and I can see if it is him, I can communicate with him. Yeah. I kick it too strong and the thing fell off. And uh, I was surprised, but uh, the guards were even more surprised. The alarms started ringing. The the the, the uh, prison commander came in. They dragged me up and uh, to the. Uh, I went to the prison uh, warden. I was given the punishment, uh, the isolation, and uh, then when this is when I came back from the isolation. Shortly after that, they moved me to the prison cell with the solidarity, with Edek Kinjorski, solidarity uh, member. And uh, now, so, yeah, the prison was scary, but it was, now when I look at it, it, it sometimes it was funny. Oh, yeah. Man. Did uh, you get any news in there? And uh, did you, did you, or was it all propaganda? Or did you hear rumors? Did you have visitors? Was anything smuggled in as far as news from the outside? What was that like? We, not in those, not in the headquarters, the, the secret state police headquarters, nor intermediate prison, but the final prison, Hrubyshov, that was one of the toughest prisons in Poland at the time. Um, yes, we were able to smuggle. I didn't, I was too young for it, but those leaders, those engineers, professors, they managed to smuggle, smuggle the camera, smuggle mm. uh, a lot of stuff into prison, and mostly the information and instrumental and it was a priest, the Catholic priest, Jerzy, mm. uh, 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 Mr. Pajurek, uh, Father Pajurek. Mm. And uh, so he, at risking his life, uh, was smuggling things to us and from us. Mm. Please remember at the same time that Polish uh, communists and, and murder another priest Ksiądz uh, Jerzy Popiełuszko was murdered by secret police. He was kidnapped and murdered. He was found that he so it's kind of like they couldn't hide it. Uh, so uh, uh, Father Popiełusz, Popiel, uh, Father uh, Pajurek was risking his life to provide us with information, to take information out, even bringing the camera into the prison. Those are heroes. Those are my heroes. Because even now, when I think about it, that could end up in death. They could be murdered by state. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And there was a win on the hunger strike, too. You mentioned about it earlier. Mm -hmm. So I was beat up by um, by the one prison guards. For, I don't remember. I think me and another prisoner were taken to a uh, hospital for some checkup. And uh, instead of going to hospital, they took us, they beat us up. So we went on hunger strike, the entire prison, uh, the political prisoners went on hunger strike. And uh, so they backed out from the punishment because uh, they want to punish us too with isolation. Uh, they beat us up and say, well, we are bad guys, so we need to be. So they backed down from it. But uh, so we, we, I was part of it, but mostly the senior prisoners, those professors, they created that mm. co code of conduct. And, and also the plan how to fight the oppression. So they're like, for example, if they beat one of us, the political prisoner, we're going to hang and strike for two days. If they do this, we're going to do this. If somebody goes being punished into isolation, uh, we will be on the hunger strike as long as they are being punished. So I think when the hunger strike was like, I think three weeks or a month long, where uh, eventually... Um, they um, we, we we stopped because the church from outside the Catholic Church 
actually they send us message information that we need to stop it because we don't we never accomplish mm. what we set ourselves to accomplish the the main thing what we what we tried to get was a status of political prisoner mm. and a socialist state any socialist state is afraid and will never admit that they hold political prisoners mm. so they always say we there's the criminals they don't sit there for for political activities they say they sit there because they broke the law but the law was like hey, i want to be free i want to speak free so mm. because i say that i'm i'm breaking the law so i go to prison but this is how socialism works and that's how uh, yeah that's uh, that's um, that's socialism. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I describe in the book. I think it is, you know, but now there's, uh, there's one thing that people ask me often, why did I write that book? Is this because some of the events happening in our country are very similar, almost identical to what happened in communist terror state? And I always say, no, that was not my intention. Uh, my intention was to write this book so people reading it about these different dangerous ideologies can appreciate America more, how great America is, how free people are here, mm. and how different from any other country in the world America is. It's very unique, and we need to protect it. Yeah, man. Well, you're in prison what are you thinking you're going to do when you get out? Are you thinking about getting out or are you thinking about making it through the day? Are you thinking about making it to dinner? Are you, what are you, what are you thinking about? And then is, are you keeping track of this time or are you thinking about it in terms of days, weeks, months, years? And then are you thinking about once I'm free, I'm going to do this? No, I didn't have any plans. I didn't know how to plan at the time because all I knew is that when I get out of prison uh, to help my mom, I will have to get a job somewhere. How do I get a job as a criminal? And uh, so I was trying really hard. I was trying to find a job. At the same time, I reconnected with my uh, Taekwondo club in, 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 uh, in Poland. And uh, but so I was trying to set my life somehow, but the news were coming in or uh, we were getting information that this person was found dead, that person was found dead, that person committed suicide. Mm. Um, I started afraid about it, especially when the intimidation process started. So what they did to me is, as I was coming back from the club, from working out, uh, the civilian car showed up, just pulled with, I mean, it was like a very violent drug, drug just drove to us almost he does it happened every time they did the same tactics the same way mm. these goons in civilian clothes jump out they had those badges they showed the badges they dragged me inside the car and took off so first time when it happened my friends like well i think they're gonna kill drago <laughs> it's like so what they did is they just drove me for hours around the city and then just like dropped me off outside the city at late at night, that communication was not working. I had to walk for miles home. Uh, but so I kind of was a, a little bit aware of this, te this technique because it was done to me in prison. When the first time they, in, in, they pulled me out of prison at two o'clock in the morning, yeah. put me in civilian car. When I asked where we are going, I was told, well, 
Well, once we get there, it will never, it will, it will not matter to you. So I can, I was expected to be killed, mm. and uh, I was already planning. It is so stupid now, but at the time I, I, I had no other option. I say, okay, I have a handcuffs, but if I'm going down, I just try to kill one of them. And uh, so as if they get me out in the woods, out of the car, I'll try to kill one of them and run away. It, it wouldn't happen. I, my hand, I was handcuffed. So, uh, but that, that was my train of thought at the time. So that happened to me twice in prison. So when it happened on the streets, um, I kind of knew right, that this is how it will end. They will just drop me off somewhere far away. Um, uh, in prison, they just drove me and throw me right back in the prison cell. Mm. But uh, later on, they just drove me drove me out of town. They dropped me off there, and I had to walk back. But after two three times, then I, I started worrying about. I talked to my friends from Solidarity. I talked to Edek Kenjorski, Andrew Krasuski, and uh, I think consensus was that I might be killed mm. one day. I might not come back from this. So. Yeah. Uh, this is where I went to U.S. Embassy. I, I was, you know, I was always fond of America. It was like the, the dream that, you know, like a fairy tale that you can, you hear the fairy tales, but you know it's not real. It's not like in your mind, it's like, I know what it is. I know how awesome it is, but I will never make that, you know. Uh, how do I get there? I have no money to travel, and who would accept me? So, yeah, and, and then, so by this time I was so desperate, I said, well, I have nothing to lose. I will just go to American Embassy. I tell them who I am, what happens to me, and if they could help me. Maybe, maybe, maybe they will allow me to come to America. That's, that was my thinking. And uh, I did, you know, I went to America. They asked me for the documents, for the uh, everything that happened to me. They wrote it down, and like three months later, I had a promise, promise to... Uh, to to receive uh, immigration or visa, and uh, and yeah, and I was I was uh, I was basically kicked out from uh, Poland, but uh, but I, I had a place to go. Uh, wow, to America. So. Jeez, how did you get to? Uh, did you go to Germany and then to America? Is that how it yeah. went? Yes. Yeah, so this is another thing too. That so travel from Warsaw to New York or somewhere and. Is long, but also like I knew nothing about America. Most of us didn't know much, except that this is the most free country in the world. Yeah. That this is the country where people live the way they want to live. It was built on personal freedom. So you now, but that's all I knew. I didn't even speak English. So the the idea was that set us in the uh, in the location in Germany until somebody in the United States will accept us or some sponsor that will accept us so we can come to America. They will help us settle down. They will help us. Uh, but also at the same time in Germany, we were meeting with uh, uh, State Department officials mm -hmm. and people who did live in America mm -hmm. and spoke Polish. And they were explaining us how, the, how to live in America, how to be good, productive, a member of society. And eventually, you know, if you deserve, you become hopefully American citizen. So for me, there was like the, those education, you know, like what do you do, what you don't do in America. And I describe in my book, there's like so many pitfalls that I had after I came. So I was, but there's one thing that struck me at the time in Germany. 
none of us, none of us will ever ask, well, what can you do for America? What can you do for, say, military or for intelligence agency? None of it. Huh. We're only asked to respect American people, American citizens, and respect American laws. Huh. That's it. Very interesting. So this is what I told myself, you know, I will come to America, I become U.S. citizen, and I will be the best U.S. citizen America can have. So that's Man. that was my goal. Man. And you get here and you end up uh, at some point working on sobs. I saw reading these manuals and then you get into free fall. You start doing, <laughs> you start jumping out of planes. And uh, yeah. so what was the lead up to, how long are you here before you start working on sobs and then decide, do you want to jump out of planes and, and learn how to skydive? Well, the first I need to actually adjust myself and learn a little bit about society because I had all these uh, for example, I didn't speak English at the time. So the couple, like all the elderly couple from church, they sometimes took me on the trips, showed me around Memphis, Tennessee, and they even bought me a little dictionary. I have it right here, uh, the dictionary. I still have it. Nice. And I wanted to impress them too, so that I'm trying to learn English, but you know, I didn't know pretty much anything. So as we drove, I remember, I was like, okay, this is a tree. And they were like, yeah, you know, yes, you're doing awesome, you're doing great. So this is a house. And we're going to, I'm going to this dictionary, like this is this, this is that, this is woman. And uh, then I see um, a black person walking on the street. So I very quickly look at him and this is mm, the word. And I tell you what, they almost wrecked the car. It's like, what? So, so just like, I, I see that I say something wrong. And uh, so I showed them in the dictionary that that's, that's what the dictionary says. So this lady, this older lady, took the pen, she scratched that word and wrote about black men. Um, that was a lesson like, you know, uh, I'm glad it had, that they caught these things, but this is how the dictionary was. And this is, I was trying to impress them. I was like trying to do my best to show that I want to learn English. There was many things, you know, I was invited to church pool party with like family party with children and stuff. So me just coming freshly from Poland, from Europe, where the most, the, the, the most stylish swimming trunks were like banana hammers, the tighter the better. <laughs> so when I showed up and I stepped out to the pool, I can see gasp and people like <laughs> I see the parents ushering kids out in one way, and the people just run up to me and say, We need to go, come here, come with us. They were not angry at me, they were just like, you know, surprised that I, I came out with like hardly mm. dressed. And they gave me like big shorts. Well, at that time in Poland uh, and these countries, if you wear those big shorts, like I wear today, you know. The, usually you had to be obese or you had to be like very old. Mm. So none of the young people want to wear any of these, but they handed to me just the, the, the shorts that were just swimming through, they were just like that. But I didn't, come, I didn't argue. I was like, yes, thank you, thank you. Oh, <laughs> like, them up. So they, they, once I show up in the proper <laughs> swimming trunks, they, they, bring the, they brought the children, <laughs> barbecue, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, but they man. had a lot of these things. I mean, yeah. I, I describe in my book, and you know, by the way, English is still a challenge 
for me. It is still, you can hear from my accent, maybe because when I learned English, I was already 24 years old, and maybe I'm not so smart with the languages. I can speak Polish, Russian, Japanese, and still learning English. But even just recent, not, not too long time ago with my wife, when she asked me one time, so what would like to have? I said, I want to, she couldn't fix me a nice dessert. Was well, so like, what, 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 what would you like for dessert? I said, I would like to eat Kimberly. She's like, eat who? I was like, Kimberly, who is Kimberly? Then I got confused. It's like, what do you mean who is Kimberly? We just ate it like two days ago in the restaurant. She just thinking, she's very smart. She's like, you mean Kimberly? <laughs> like, for me, it sounds so the same. Uh -huh. Yeah, I said, yeah, that, that, that's it. So yeah, <laughs> I, want the, I want the Kimberly again. So no, no, no. You need to say the proper, say Kimberly. So no, I think I'm better, but I still have a list of words. Mm. Uh, she gave me, made a list of words that I am not allowed to say in public with her. <laughs> wise yes very wise and uh how did you end yeah. up working on uh on the sobs well see so when i came to america i became janitor so i started from being janitor working i was working hard and uh, as i learned and progressed with my english they uh, asked me if i can if i can progress if i want to have a little bit different job paying more and uh, i say yes absolutely so my f my first job after being janitor was being the parts man. So like a helper for the parts man, and uh, in the in the parts department of Oakley Kizzy Ford in Memphis. Mm. And uh, I was working so hard, but with my because of my English, I couldn't do what they expect me to do. But my job was to answer the phone and listen to the numbers. Like I want the part five five six. Charlie, this, this. And uh, I'm supposed to write it down, then go to the bin, pick the part, and set ready by the gate so the driver come in can pick it up. Good God, I missed so many of those. I mean, there was like people were cussing me up and down because like, hey, I, I just made to my work with the part and there's the wrong part. You just gave me the wrong part. But I was working so hard, the dealership didn't want to just outright fire me. They said, like, okay. You came from Europe, but never mind, it was Eastern Europe, but uh, Central Europe, but you came from Europe, so can you, uh, do you work on European cars? It's like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I never even owned the car in my life. So, so, so they brought me to dealership. It was a, a shilling at the time, a shilling as Porsche, Audi, and Saab. And I was supposed to interview with the shop foreman for each car. So the um, Porsche guy came in, it's like, Daryl, he says, nah, the guy doesn't speak English, but <laughs> he will fuck something up and there's like, expensive cars. So I said, oh, no. Uh, same with Audi. But then as I'm waiting for the mechanic from Saab, I'm kind of like losing my hopes already. And then there is a, you can hear this big motorcycle, Harley Davidson without pipes. The guy coming in, he's looking like the freaking seven foot Sasquatch. He walks in, he looks at me, say, that guy? It's like, yeah, he, like, so the, the manager, you want to work with Jim and, and be sub mechanic? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I was actually you know, hoping that maybe he will have some mercy and take me. Just look at me and say, sure, I need a slave. Bring him in. And this is how my career started. He, Jim, James Moore, 
James Moore. He taught me everything about cars. I became a good mechanic to the point that even Mercedes people came and asked me to work for Mercedes later. But uh, he taught me everything. And I remember my task at the beginning was to learn about cars and read manuals. Mm. I couldn't read. I couldn't for me to read the page to get day because I had to have a dictionary find every word in it mm. almost. So I asked Jim, hey, can you read this book to me? Mm. I didn't know that Jimbo was not a really good reader at the time. He was more like a, they call him motorcycle gangster. He was a motorcycle gangster for everybody in this in the around Memphis. And um and uh, he just said, Well, no, well, okay, but you tell someone I kill you. I was like, no, I'm not going to tell anybody. I did it until just, just now. now when I left the Navy. <laughs> yeah. So he was trying to read. And I tell you what, that was laboring for him and even for me too, to listen to it. But what he did to me is he set me on the course because, uh, you know, that might be not the best reading, but it was a lifesaver for me. He did it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he would never do it to anybody, for anybody who would never... Uh, reading books was not his forte mm-hmm. but he did it for me so i could be better mechanic and wow. i owe him so much my, my i owe him my career my life in the united states how it started that's james really cool. moore wow sub mechanic that's really cool man so that's how i started working in it, in it. then i started skydiving yeah too. how did that happen what did you did you always want to do it did you see it on tv did you drive by a drop no, zone and someone no, take no. you I, I knew nothing about skydiving but one day i met a girl and uh, she was telling me that she made the job. And I was so impressed. She was very beautiful. She was from Kansas. We met in Memphis. And uh, she she told me that uh, she made the parachute job. And I was so fascinated. So asking her, uh, I lost contact with her uh, shortly after that. But she was very beautiful. And uh, she, uh, I figured out if a girl can jump, you know, those that might still is the European thinking. If a girl can jump, the guy definitely can. So I went to have first weekend. I went to that time there was no internet. So yellow pages looking parachute, parachutes. Yeah, here at this drop zone, parachute skydiving club. So I called them. They said, Yeah, we can come in. So I went up there hoping to make a first parachute jump. But yeah. I was told that no, now if you want to jump, you can only jump tandem. If you want to jump on your own, you have to go to the classes. It takes maybe a couple of weeks. Sometimes, sometimes three weeks, because you have to make seven jumps and progress and jump. They were talking about AFF, mm-hmm. uh, 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 skydiving school. But for now, we can do the tandem jump. I said, I was kind of disappointed because, uh, no, I don't want to have a guy strapped to my back, but sure. But after the first jump, I was like, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I said, damn, can I do one more? They say, yeah, so I made one more. I say, I do one more, but they were already shutting down. So I say, how can I skydive on my own? They explain it to me, the process. Mm-hmm. So where can we start? Say, so, well, we can start Thursday, maybe then on the weekend, then maybe next weekend. So within three weeks, we'll be skydiving on my own. And I started on Thursday, uh, uh, the following week, and Saturday I was jumping on my own. Wow. That was, that was my aim. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, and then you see with the, the leapfrog. So for those listening, it's the, uh, yeah, the Navy yeah. jump team. Was, yes. So... Um, that I was there was that uh, that happened that what, what you mentioned here is when the first Persian war broke out. Uh, uh, so I was skydiving and the leapfrogs, the Navy SEAL 
sales came to Memphis, Tennessee doing some demonstration or jumps, but they like to jump. So they came to our drop zone and we jumped together. And by this time, I was already in process enlisting in uh, US Army. I figured out, I, I became US citizen. So I figured out this is my country and I want to be good citizen. I'm going to go and support that war. I'm going to go and join military, join army. I had no idea about the difference between Navy, Army, Marines, Coast Guard, uh, Air Force. But for me, it was just the Army. So uh, I figured out I'm going to join mm. Army. And uh, I went to post office. I feel, like, what do you call this draft? There's not a draft, like a draft card for young uh, uh, citizens after school. They can fill it up, register. I forgot the selective Selective register. service? Yeah, some, yeah, something like this. You can you register yourself. But I didn't know. I thought this is a, that's a contract. That's a, I feel it up. America is at war. I send it, and they just next thing they're gonna get me. So I went. I sent it off in, in the post office. Went back and packed my stuff, ready to go to war. And well, it didn't work this way. So uh, <laughs> uh, I, that's why I was advised that yeah, you need to go actually to recruiting office. Uh, and then I described the, the whole process in the book. And uh, and then uh, I went to an army recruiting office. They start processing my paperwork, my all, all that stuff. And then Navy SEALs show up with the leapfrogs. They say, well, why don't you try Navy? Like, Some Navy SEALs maybe. I was like, what's that Navy SEALs? Because we are Navy SEALs. So I said, okay, yeah. They told me a little bit about it. I got excited about it. So I went to the uh, Navy office. I said, look, I'm already to, uh, about to, my processing is almost finished by army. But I think I changed my mind. I want to be in the Navy. I said, why do you want to be in the Navy? I said, I want to be a SEAL. It's like, ooh, SEAL. Yeah, sure. How old are you? I was like, 31, going 32. Oh, kind of too old, but no problem. You just sign these papers here. They will make you a SEAL there. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, yeah, they told me to go grab my paperwork from Army guys. I was very uncomfortable doing it, mm-hmm. but I did it. So I brought them, they say, yeah, you sign these papers, work, go to boot camp, you need to go to boot camp first, and then they will make you seal. I say, okay. I didn't really care about, that, that was not my goal, primary goal to be Navy SEAL. My goal was to go and fight for America because it was there was a war going on. And if I fight as a SEAL or anybody else, I'm fine. I would like to be a SEAL, but there was nothing that... Um, that, that it's not the most important thing for me, but it happened that actually I did. Uh, I did. Uh, I graduated from the boot camp as a number one recruit, the best recruit hey. in the whole graduation group. Nice. Then I went to A school, and I graduated in the top of the class, or second maybe. So I think the Navy scene something in me that I was able to obtain the age waiver and, uh, and eventually end up in the, in the SEAL uh, training and, yeah. and the SEAL teams. But uh, yeah, I described it. That was also not that easy process too, because uh, the kidney stone that I got in the boot camp, the paperwork, I still have it. I just found out a month ago the same, that the paperwork says, I'm not eligible for SEAL training because I had a kidney stone and uh, one is my age, but one is a kidney stone. And the kidney stone is disqualifying for a year or a year or two years. And so that was it of my things. Okay, so 
I just do what I set myself to do. I'll just go join the Navy, go to war, and, uh, you know, I won't be a SEAL. But uh, then in the A school, too, there was, uh, rest in peace, brother, Les Barrios. Uh, him, uh, I went to him. He was a SEAL motivator on, on the base in Millington, Tennessee. And I told him that I would like to be in Navy SEAL. If there's any way, maybe, to, I'm doing well in the Navy, if I could... Uh, get orders to Coronado, to Bats. And uh, he said, we can try it. We can put up your paperwork in to pass the test. I said, well, but I have a, a problem because my kidney stone and paper says that I cannot go to SEAL training for another couple of years, I think. So he said, well, uh, bring me your medical record. We'll take a look at it. And he wrote me the chat. I went up there, obtained the medical records. I ran to his office. He just took a look at this and, okay, I want you to leave. I'll call you back when I'm ready. So I was like, hmm, that's, that's weird. So I step outside. I'm just like to listen to, you know, like what's going on up there? I can hear shuffling the papers and hear it. <laughs> and just throwing the, something will end up in the trash. Say, hey, come on in. <laughs> so he just look at me and say, well, uh, help me find this paperwork about the, your kidney stone. I don't see anything. What is it? I was like, oh, it's... So I'm looking, looking, say, no, I don't see it either. He said, are you sure you had a kidney stone? Well, by this time, I wasn't sure I didn't. I said, <laughs> no, I, I don't think I had. So, yeah, and then I get my orders to see on training. And, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. The pod cover by H Sleep. As an author writing late into the night and as a parent with three kids who get up early, I need every second of sleep I can get. That's where the pod cover by H Sleep comes in. Summer is reaching its apex, and there's nothing worse than tossing, turning, or sweating in the night because of summer heat. The pod cover by 8 Sleep will keep you cool all night, all the way down to 55 degrees Fahrenheit, so you wake up fully refreshed. The pod cover by 8 Sleep fits on any bed like a fitted sheet. The pod cover will improve your sleep by automatically adjusting the temperature on each side of the bed based on your and your partner's individual needs. It can cool down and warm up and adjusts based on the phases of your sleep and the environment that you're in. Invest in the rest you deserve with the 8 Sleep Pod. I sleep great on mine, especially now in the heat of the summer. Go to 8sleep.com slash danger close and save $150 on the pod cover. Stay cool this summer with 8 Sleep. Now shipping within the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. Remember, that's 8sleep.com slash danger close. E I G H T sleep.com slash danger close. And how was, uh, how was buds for you? Did you have any, uh, any issues or did you just, uh, not until the third phase? Okay. Uh, I didn't have issues. Uh, Hell week was fine. Cool Hell, oh, Hell week was, yeah, I ended up with, with no skin on my feet and my heels. I have a, actually pictures of it. It looks really bad now, but at that time, like, it was not a big deal. Um, but yeah, there was like a kick in the balls. You you come in, they kick in the balls, and then you come out and you're done. There was really nothing to it. Oh, I hear the horror stories. And, uh, and that, that, that could be very difficult for some people. For me, I guess I was too naive and maybe too determined to worry about anything. I just wanted to just just keep going. Did you ever and, think, uh, uh, hey, this isn't as bad as a Polish prison? Mm, no, not really. There mm. was just, I was so focused on 
just being it, wanting to be a Navy SEAL, mm. that, uh, uh, that no, that's, I didn't think about it. Now I know there was the, the mental state that I was, uh, was able to, uh, the, 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 men, the mentality from prison, mm. from prison life, was helpful to me, but I didn't think about it at the time. Yeah. So uh, that was not the most difficult was the third phase, though, because third phase was a st- like heroin on steroids, but for a, for so many weeks. It was not just one week, and it was always cold, always hungry, always. Uh, and this is where the prison time was actually kicked in. It's like, well, yeah, okay, that's that's not as really not as bad. <laughs> but what helped me too is when instructors were yelling at me and screaming. They were screaming at everybody. Yeah. So it, I didn't bother. I see people being startled and sometimes scared of just avoiding some instructors. I just laugh. I smile at it because <laughs> you can scream all your life. Right? There's really nothing you can do to me except maybe you can beat me up. They could. But, you know, there was those bats. So there was like yeah. they didn't beat people up. They were training us to be hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I have a lot of respect for it. Even more respect that at the end of my career, I became SEAL instructor myself. And I, I tell you, this is what it actually shocked me, how uh, I was looking at these young kids and I was asking myself how they don't quit, mm. how they can go on with all these, uh, all that stuff that's going on around it that we do to them and they, they don't quit. They just don't quit. Uh, and uh, that's so... There was like the renewed respect for the training, for the process of creating Navy SEALs, which before I just was like a kicking the balls. You get in, get out as a sea, as a you know, ready to go to SEAL teams. Um, but now when I became a SEAL instructor, it was just like totally new perspective opened for me. Yeah. A lot of respect for the entire process. Yeah. Oh man. And you go to you go to SEAL Team Two first, is that right? Yes, my first assignment was SEAL Team Two. And uh, SEAL tactical then, training uh, with them, with the SEAL tactical Coast. training. Yes, at that time, you remember, there was no uh, SQT. Uh, today, the process is a bit different. Mm-hmm. You go to BATS, you go to SEAL tactical, to SQT, SEAL qualification training, and you leave as a SEAL with a Trident on. At that time, you did BATS, go to job school, go to SEAL team, assigned SEAL team, then wait for the STT at the time, just like SQT today. And then when you finish SQT, you were assigned to operational SEAL platoon. And then they were judging you. You were not SEAL yet. When they approve, when you pass the, the test and uh, pass the SEAL board with Chiefs, Master Chiefs, then you were awarded Trident and became SEAL. So the process was much longer. I don't know if it's better. Uh, I see quality of the SEALs coming out. They are very smart, very strong kids. Uh, so, um, so, but I still, I still think that all process was a little bit more selective, a little bit yeah. selection process. I like that too, because you had to be accepted by your peers. You had to prove yourself yes. to them. You had yes. to be someone that they wanted to go to war with, that they trusted yes. to go to war with. And, uh, so I liked that. I liked having that probationary period with guys that were Absolutely. SEALs, uh, and then getting it from your platoon and your team and getting that thing pounded in and, uh, yeah. Oh, old, yeah, school, yeah. old school. I look, I look like the porcupine attacked me from the chest <laughs> when I get my list. But you know, you're absolutely right. I think, especially with, especially with, uh, uh, with uh, the case of Eddie Gallagher, I, I know how close you followed it. But some of these guys, I believe, 
who accusing him for all that stuff, I think out of fear, mm. they they wouldn't make in the old times. I, I, I just don't see how somebody with very little combat experience or none can come up to chief with 10 combat deployments and tell chief, well, chief, I think uh, your tactics are dangerous or, or you are dangerous. We can get killed. I mean, are you serious? That's coming from the Navy SEAL. Some of these guys are no longer SEALs, but, but that's just something that I could not comprehend how even that word can come out of somebody's mouth, of somebody's mouth, where we can, we can get killed. Yeah, we can. So that's our job. Yeah. Sometimes that we put life on line. But it's, it's happening. This is why I'm big. I'm very fond of this old process. Yeah. You, actually, like you, you have yeah. to be approved, and you have to be yeah. uh, by by your peers. Yeah, there's something about that. And then, uh, then you go into a workup, and I think you have three deployments before September 11th. How many deployments do you yes. have? Yes. Yes. And on one of those, and, did you go uh, back to Poland on one of those? Oh yes, on one of those I went to Poland. I described it in the book. Mm -hmm. The first deployment was 1995. So it was right after the socialism fell uh, in Poland and they were still having the, the old ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. So I remember with friends, with the team guys, with SEALs, we went to restaurant and of course the staff and the uh, waitresses, they start promptly yelling at us, screaming at us and, and, and you know, just telling us what to do, what we can eat, what we cannot. The other guys like, are you crazy, Drago? Well, let's go eat somewhere that's more friendly. <laughs> I have to explain, I have to explain to them, no, 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 this is the way the things are in Poland. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you are in the, if you are selling something, you work for the mm. food store or the restaurant, you are like a king because mm. you manage the food. So if you want extra food, you can actually go up there and, and, uh, and, and maybe buy something under the table. So there were always those people behind the uh, working the stores, restaurants. They were like kings yeah. and queens in Poland. So the attitude is still stay even after <laughs> all of socialism. It changed. It's different yeah. now. Now the Poland is like it's totally free country. It's like America. It's, it's beautiful too. Yeah. Beautiful people, and they love us. They love Americans. What did it feel like to go back there in '95? Uh, well, <clears throat> please remember, I left Poland as a felon mm -hmm. as a uh, criminal and uh, so i didn't really know what to expect but i was greeted as a hero and uh, it was that was very very different so i didn't expect that yeah. and uh, it was the first time i seen my mother too because uh, <clears throat> she we never thought we'll see each other my passport was only one way so i couldn't come back to poland she wouldn't. She wouldn't be able to come to America. So, uh, so yeah. So for me, my officer, Mister uh, Bill B, I didn't have a chance to talk to him yet. Ask if I can use his name. So I have the respect for this officer. I'm not going to say his name, but Mister B told me, "You have no take a couple of days. If you didn't see mom for decades, why don't you just go and see your mom?" Mm. So I jump in the plane, in that plane, the train. I drove, and this is the first time I seen my mother. So wow. yeah, that was it was super nice. What was that like? Wow. Well, I had to call her first to make sure that she doesn't have a heart attack. So when I made to the city, uh, city lots, I called her and said, "Mom, uh, just sit down. I have to tell you something." So she sat down and said, "Okay, I'm in lots, and I will be there in like one hour." 
So she started crying. And, oh. Yeah, that was uh, it was awesome. You know, wow. it's just, I've seen the family like that. I <clears throat> I didn't think I would ever see. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. And then is your next deployment Sarajevo, Bosnia? Is that the the next one? Yeah, Sarajevo, uh, Bosnia, and uh, that's fun. So I describe in my book too. This is what I meant. I mean, SEAL teams have a, such a great people. This is what I miss the most. I miss mm. these guys, you know. The, but uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, and uh, this is what I met. One of the strongest guys in the SEAL teams I ever met. There were two of them, actually. One was Chris Stroop, another was Jaco. But Chris, with Chris Stroop, this guy, good guy. Yeah. We went to France to do some exercises with their commandos. He put so many plates on, on the on the bar when they're doing their chest presses. He bent the bar, the weights started falling off. Frenchies got offended that we destroyed their equipment, but Chris was that strong. Mm-hmm. He actually helped me a lot too, setting up the program, teaching me how to really properly work out, how to be stronger. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that guy was extremely strong. And another guy from another platoon was Jaco. I don't see even today uh, a CEO, many CEOs, they could fight him. They could yeah. win the fight with this guy. Yeah. I mean, this guy is <laughs> exceptional, but he's also a great leader. Yeah. I, I learned so much yeah. from that platoon with Jaco, from him, from his people, how he led his people. And what was nice about it is that, you know, people like Mr. B, Mr. Uh, Queen F, again, I cannot say mm. their name uh, because I didn't ask them first. With Chris Rube, I did ask him about it. So, so uh, from Jack knows because I was on his podcast uh, twice, so uh, so I can use that then those names. But Jack was had something about him that makes you feel safe. Mm. Uh, you know, that maybe sounds funny coming from the seal because we always feel safe, but it's some kiss, some aura, uh, the way he leads people that you want to be around him, you want to fight with him. You want to go to combat with him. And this is something that uh, lasted with me forever, yeah. uh, for, for, for a long, long time. And we are still friends. We are, I have a lot of respect for what he accomplished after leaving the Navy. Well, another guy, which was, is, uh, as we talk about it, let me just bring a couple of guys that really have big influence on me and really uh, are my, is Rob O'Neill. Yeah. Uh, Rob, let me tell you this. This guy, people don't know about it. He can dance. He can sing. He can play piano with easy. And he can kill terrorists with the same easy. This is the guy who has 400 combat missions. I mean, think about it. People in Second World War didn't amass that money. And, uh, and, and again, so he's, he's my great friend. I, I really appreciate Hanging out with him, we're calling him sometimes, just uh, talking. And this is the guy who always answered the phone. If he can't, just message you. So it's, there, there are many seals that kind of like you have to call them twice, three, four times before you hear an answer. Um, uh, but he is one of the guy that just call him, just calls you right back. We became really good friends in the platoon. We were, we were the E5 Mafia oh, yeah. in Mr. B Platoon. So we we, we ruled the E5 thing. That's, a, that's, and, the, that's uh, the best position to be in in the SEAL teams is in the E5 yeah, Mafia. Yeah, yeah. Those are good, good memories. Keep the doors and have to worry about the paperwork. Yeah. We became <laughs> the best friends. Oh. Yeah, and there's one more. There's a guy who I'd like to talk about because uh, people... This is a guy about whom I heard before I met him. 
Uh, I'm talking about Ryan Parrot, uh, Birdman. Mm-hmm. You know, his name is Parrot, so they call him Birdman. People think, well, Birdman because Parrot. No, he was, uh, they, they, they drove over ID. He was blown out on the Humvee. They call him Parrot because he flew so high and so far away, like a bird, and landed. So he was all burned up, all injured, bleeding. This guy runs back into eggs and keeps saving lives of the other guys out there, not thinking about himself. I mean, for he's my hero. He's one of my heroes. Yeah. Ryan Parrot, yeah. Birdman. He's awesome. And uh yeah, we're we're trying to uh, link up and get on the get him on the podcast here at some point. We text each other yeah uh, every now Please and then. Please do so. so. I yeah. mean this guy can and he's he's still doing things for our yeah. community. Yeah. He's still yeah. I, 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 if you get him on your podcast Brother, I mean, I'm, I'll be signing up and clicking all the best things <laughs> I can get. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna text him right after this. You reminded me; it's been like a month or so since we've uh, since we've talked. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit him yeah. up right after this. But and, uh, and, you know, there's since we talk about the guys, there's, yeah. there's so many. I mean, there's so many guys. You just like you, you don't mention one, and that's you feel bad. But she <laughs> should say something about him. But there's uh, Joe Lambert. I mean, I, I don't think I would be married today if not this guy. We were in the SEAL instructors at the time, and I had my challenges with clothing. You know, the, all I had is jeans, jeans and a white t-shirt. If I wanted to be fancy, I was wearing black jeans and black t-shirt. Mm-hmm. But there was no clothes I had. He said, Drago, you cannot find wife. You cannot find girlfriend if you just dress like a bomb. This is not the war zone. He actually took me to the stores and he purchased, I mean, I pay for it, but he actually dressed me up. So after, after the visit with Joel to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to clothing stores, shoe stores and stuff, I was sure there was no girl in the world that can resist my child. So, <laughs> and boy, yeah, were you right. That's how I met Rachel later. Yeah. yeah. So Joel, if you hear it, brother. Oh, man. Cheers. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. What were you guys, uh, what was the mission in, in Bosnia and, uh, and Sarajevo when you were there? Uh, for us, it was not really much. We didn't do a lot, but we were mm-hmm. mostly, uh, I don't know if I can talk about this. I think there's nothing, no big deal about about this anymore, but we were so surveying at the time uh, the uh, safe houses mm. and their escape routes and and, uh, and was basically escorting escorting the Air Force guy who was making, actually, who was judging how, if it is good drop zone, if it's good pickup zone by the aircraft mm. uh, or uh, hilo or bad or change. So we're working with, we were escorting them to the whole Bosnia. And then uh, when uh, one of these uh, uh, bad guys, bad actors was uh, uh, acquired by our forces. We did secure the airport up there, make sure that it's safe and mm-hmm. he can be removed from the Yugoslavia in safe manner and stuff. Besides, we did some other stuff too, which uh, 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 I wouldn't want to talk about until I mm-hmm. have a chance to talk to Mr. Uh, Bill B mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and our chiefs and our commanders. Yeah. And then you do in 2000, I think you're doing some shipboarding in the, uh, oh, yeah, in the, that, the UN embargo. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, get to, I yes. did some of that as well. So I was reading about that in your book and uh, we hadn't talked about that before. So I, I didn't know you did that mission as well. So it's, that's an interesting one. It was the only, really the only time I was on a ship in the, my, all, all my time in the military was, uh, or my time in the Navy was doing that mission. And you guys did it before September 11th. Is that right? Yeah, that was before September 11. At that time, there was like a big thing. Oh yeah. my God, these guys just hijacked Russian tanker. And, and uh, but uh, no, 
from today's perspective, there was not not that difficult mission, but for us at the time, oh, yeah. Was, yeah, that that was something very big and yeah. very, uh, especially that uh, we were we were working over a Russian tanker that uh, flew Russian flag, and it was I believe it went all the way to Madeleine Albright at the time to get the approval to take the ship down. And uh, the thing was that they already knew that something is going on. So they were skirting the territorial waters of other countries. Mm. So for us, was the, ch- the challenge was to take, uh, take down that ship before it turns into the territorial waters of other countries, because mm. then w- we have an international incident on our hands. We would have to actually, we would have to jump off that ship into mm. the water not to get into territorial waters of another yeah. country. So, um, so yeah, but we were very quick. Yeah, we just passed through from the hill of the ship, took it down. I terrorized the, the, the captain was yakking in Russian that, yeah, don't cooperate, don't help Americans. They are bad people. They are imperialists. And so, and so uh, unfortunately for the dude, <laughs> Uh, I spoke Russian, uh, Mr. Queen F spoke Russian, mm. and we have a Ro, uh, 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 Robert uh, M who spoke Russian. So we all we were all set for this. Wow. So Mr. Mr. Uh, F tells me to take this guy outside, just silence him, make him quiet uh, for, for, <laughs> for, 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 for some time. So I just took him outside and I started to shut up or I would squash him yeah. into this chimney right there. There's a like, little painting the size of the briefcase. I say, if you don't fit, I will make you fit in and so just shut up. And he did. And uh, so yeah. then uh, uh, that, that's how yeah, we took down the ship very quickly. Oh, so we were over it. It was under uh, Jacko's command. Nice. And then when were you, uh, well, where were you on September? Mr. Filma. Yeah. Where were you on September 11th? Uh, September 11, I was on the quarterback of SEAL Team 2. Actually, I was in the gym. We were working out, and one of the guys came in the gym and said, hey, there is a, the airplane just hit the, one of the Twin Towers. So the, the first comments, I remember even by myself, what an idiot flew the airplane into the to one of the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he drunk or something? What? didn't think that we didn't understand the gravity of it yet. Mm-hmm. And we thought it was just a small airplane. But then uh, more people start coming to the gym and say, hey, this is something that is, is there's not a small plane. There was a jetliner that did that. So we, I think most of us left the gym and went to quarter day. There was TV up there. We we're all watching. So I watched actually how the, the second plane uh, hit that second tower. It was sickening. We already knew that that's, we are going to be used. We are going to be hunting down these bastards. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that image uh, will stay with me, I think, to the end of my life, seeing these people dying there and uh, in the towers and those planes plunging with it. This is why when I went to Iraq, I never, I, I didn't go there with intention of winning hearts and minds. Fuck their hearts and minds. I wanted to terrorize the terrorists and kill them. Uh, all of us, we became terrorists, terrorizers, and it works. I believe it works. Like I say earlier, violence always works. If it didn't work for you, it means you did not apply enough of it. With terrorists, it works even better. And uh, that's why, yeah, I'm proud of being terrorist, terrorizer. I didn't go there to win hearts or minds. I went there to kill them. And when was your first time downrange after September 11th? 
Uh, after September 11, we went, uh, I went to, in 2003 to uh, Iraq. I was actually in the middle of deployment. Uh, we were deployed to, we deployed to South America. Great guys, great platoon, and very aggressive people. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, F, you hear it, brother, you, there's so many other guys. I mean, I, I don't want to start calling name, bringing the names because I would feel guilty that I didn't mention somebody. <laughs> but, they know. you know, there's every every single one. There was such a great yeah. guys and a very aggressive. We all are aggressive people. So when when three months into deployment, the Kalkin in the Drago needs to go to Baghdad to, super, to help coordinate uh, and synchronize the Polish Special Forces ground with the great, powerful guys. With, with our guys, with Navy SEALs, I was elated. I was like, my dream came true. I'm going to war. And uh, all these guys are pissed. Because what the F? I want to go to war. Every single one. I don't know a SEAL who wouldn't want to go to war. Mm -hmm. So all of them, they were pissed because they, <laughs> they wanted to go to war too. Yeah, Great guys. Uh, I was just lucky. I was just lucky. Yeah. So when they, uh, they sent me to Baghdad, and that's where I started but the thing is that i supposed to go there for three months you know we did that six months deployments right so three months in south america and then we go to uh you go i was told you go for three months to uh to iraq you come back we start another cycle another platoon seal platoon so i said yeah sure okay i want to maximize these three months and kill as many bastards as many as i can uh and uh but like three months passed and I didn't hear anything. So like, uh, that's cool. <laughs> I'm just gonna so, stay. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't say nothing, I didn't say nothing. Then another platoon came in and they said like, uh, well, can you stay with us a bit longer? They actually asked uh, who wants to stay a little bit longer uh, with, uh, with, uh, with us. Uh, so I said, yeah, absolutely, I will stay, I will stay. <laughs> so they said, okay, Dragon stay, stay. So I volunteered for the extension. And then like four months passed, five months passed, I don't hear from nothing from my command. So five months for me is like eight months deployment already. Then six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, like nobody colleagues up. But by this time I already sensed that, you know what, if I call them, they're gonna pull me out. So mm -hmm. I just try to sit quiet and just just do those missions. Yeah. And uh, and uh and like 11 months, I think at the end of the 11 months, my NVGs broke, so I had to call <laughs> my command. So, yeah. hey, I need my, I need my, I need, can you guys send me NVGs? <laughs> and uh, you, 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 if you read in that book, you can see, you, can, you remember the, 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 the reaction. There were some new guys in the armory, and they say, okay, you want the, you want the NVGs to send where to Baghdad? I say, yeah. You, who are you? I said, Drago. And you'll be know, with his accent. Oh, okay. <laughs> By the way, do you want the suicidal bomb vest with it too, you <laughs> fucking terrorist? Please don't try to elicit some, some equipment to, to uh, back that from them. Didn't cross the guy's mind that I'm coming on the internal <laughs> line. It's like, not like a terrorist can walk to the phone and call seal team four. But anyway, I said, really like, you motherfucker, I'm going to kill you when I get up there. You better get me Master Chief online. And uh, gave me somebody else in line. There was like a new guy actually who just checked me the seal team four. And so Master Chief comes in line and I remember the conversations like, oh, hey, Drago, nice to see you, to hear from you, you know. I was always in trouble. So <laughs> I was like, that's nice from Master Chief. Yeah. And I uh, say, so where are you at? I was like, in Baghdad. 
oh yeah 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 oh, how long man. have you been there it's like almost a year uh oh <laughs> okay hold on let me get like so online and uh, <laughs> let me get you that and but i, I made a mistake here it was not 11 months in baghdad there was the uh, almost nine months in Baghdad. It was three months deployment and nine months yeah. in Baghdad. I'm almost oh, 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 oversight mm-hmm. uh, that. But my memory is not quite good now. So anyway, so um, so they, they pulled me back. We need to come back here because there's another SEAL team going out and we are after that SEAL team. So I say, they, they basically, they kidnapped me from Baghdad. And, said, <laughs> no. and I was trying to remember um, where we first met and I think you were at four already. I was checking into team two in January of 2003. And then I can't remember if we met there or if we met in Iraq and then back at SEAL Team 2 for a Little Creek area after that. I was trying to remember, but uh, we were up in North in Missoula. Yeah, Missoula. You were with the Grom. You were, I remember you. You were attached to the Grom. And and uh, and that's when I was like, who's this guy? When I first met you, I'm like, what? (laughs) He's what? He's because he doesn't, he certainly doesn't sound like uh, any other seal well, I've ever yeah. talked to before. Uh, like, is he, is he like Grom, but he's just wearing our uniform to be with us? So like, well, I didn't know. And uh, so I remember that and like, who's this just beast of a, of an individual that's just crushing it. And, uh, and then yeah. Missoula, we were in Missoula in 2004. 2004. 2004. Yeah. 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 I was there too. Yeah. Doing yeah. the, uh, yeah. you, and you were that's liaison we were. with the Grom, I think for most yes. of the, of that period, like you were, I mean, you were with the yeah, I was still, Yeah, I was staying there. And you guys, you remember what happened then is your mission changed. Yep. So I was left with Grom. So we we're just riding savages with Grom. Yep. The Marines got up. That was actually started with the Marines because the Marines, the, their special forces, I think they were not part of the SOCOM yet. They came in and Grom like said, we don't want to work with them. Mm. They are not SEALs. I was like, dude, they are good guys. I was, but I tell you, I was very impressed with these guys. They were fantastic. They were awesome guys. We gave them the old Humvees. Like some of the others I would expect would be bitching and whining about it. These guys fixed them up and they were so proud of what they did. Look at this. They came, they, they pull out in our posse camp and say, look, Drago, look at this. Uh, they fixed them. They made them better than we ever made them, that, that we had them. So, yeah, they, um, so they didn't want to work with Marines. I said, like, no, no, dude, they are so good guys. Once we start working with this unit, they love them. They love Marines. Yeah. Oh, by the way, my son is Marine too. So, oh, wow. Uh, Didn't know that. I mean, he, he left Marines now. He's in college, uh, studying in university, electrical engineering. Oh, wow. But he spent a year in uh, Afghanistan as a Marine. So my oh. other son is a Coast Guard. Oh, man. Well, please, please give them both my, my best. And uh, yeah, you, so you stayed up there in Missoula. We had to go down to Baghdad for the interim Iraqi yeah. government official protection detail. And, uh, and then did you go to, to, to I, can't, for, I can't remember because we were in separate sectors, but uh, Grom yeah. snipers went to Najaf. And I had a sniper team in one portion of, of Najaf, Iraq, in that summer, August of 2004. And then Grom had a certain section with snipers. Uh, Marine Marsoktet 1 had a certain section. Army SF had a yeah. certain section. Um, and I forget where we linked up again after that. Well, what happened is when you guys left, we stayed in Mosul uh, doing the same thing with the DAs and uh, snatching these bastards and killing them. But the problem was that you guys cleaned the Mosul to the point there was nobody there and people were scared of running. And every, when we did the raids after you guys left, there was like nobody 
to catch. You, you, you cut everybody. So, you, I mean, your platoon, uh, your task, you actually cleaned the mazul uh, to the point that we had no jobs. So mm. we moved back to Baghdad. And we're, then we started working with Marines and raiding, raiding savages in, the, in Baghdad and, uh, yeah, taking care of them up there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that was. And then, so, so I was supposed to be there for like two weeks when I, when I came to Mosul. But uh, so like two weeks passed, nobody says anything. So I'm just like keeping my fingers crossed that they, they forgot about me. <laughs> so like two man, months, two weeks, months, two months, three months, four months. Then I get a call from my team, say, Drago, dude, we are deploying in two months. <laughs> you need to come back and uh, get in your platoon, start working. Mm-hmm. So I came back again the platoon. I don't remember those two months, three months, whatever the time was. Um, so I came back into the platoon and we deployed to Iraq back again. So pretty Man. much I did all these three deployments back to back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're in the SEAL uh, teams and in special operations, I think it's kind of good to go to another unit and get forgotten about it. Uh, it happened to me with the, with the CIA. I got, I got, uh, detailed yeah. over, over to them for something and you do, you're kind of like in another, you know, kind of, you're not in this pile anymore. You're in this other pile and your chain of command has to focus on their mission. And you're just some guy doing something with the Grom. I'm some guy doing something with the CIA. And there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot of freedom. Yeah, in that. And, and especially, especially that, you know, I caused a lot of pro- problems in the teams. I was going through divorce at the time. So there was the first time in a long time that like, there's no news from Drago and all, all is good. It's like, so, so <laughs> no it's news like, is good news. <laughs> yeah, no news from Drago is good news. Whatever he is, whatever he's doing, just keep him there, let him do it. So we, we don't have a problems here. And, and I, I think this is how, how it worked. So yeah, that's, uh, that, that was great for me. And uh, then when I came back, we, we deploy again. And that was not so much fun anymore. At that time, it was like a little bit more... Uh, uh, more dangerous, I would say, but more dangerous from the politicians, from the danger was coming from our politicians, from them changing the rules of engagement or asking for things that uh, could be potentially dangerous to us. So that was a different, totally different mind frame, uh, mind frame uh, of the guys that were going in. And some of them were going the first time in combat. So that was... Uh, Kind of, I wish they had experience where there was like real combat. Mm. Wow. But you know, that's that's what it is what it is. And, yeah, uh, well, I, I was just I consider myself very lucky. Uh, you know, there's on so many levels. One, becoming American, mm. to joining the Navy, becoming Navy SEALs, and then joining uh, combat. There's so many Navy SEALs who went through entire career without seeing ever combat and you know more power to them you know this is not something that you don't we don't want war but if there is a war you want to be part of it that's how seals words work and uh so yeah that's uh and then being able to by luck to be in combat to be in combat zone this mm-hmm. was extremely i consider myself extremely lucky yeah yeah me too did people don't know I don't you know unless they're really you know tight with the community how close the relationship was maybe still is I'm not sure between the seals and is. the Grom and um, it's uh, what were the main differences between working with a strictly seal platoon and working with the Grom when it's just you and them? 
Uh, I think the, the the biggest thing that I've seen it is, um, you know, they are powerful guys. They, they all fight. They can box. They can kickbox. They are strong guys. But the biggest difference is um, the way I've seen it is the rules of engagement. The rules of engagement, rules of engagement were the same for everybody. But their interpretation was a bit more like a, a special forces type. Uh, so more like a not so strict. They were they were able to be. This is why they were so effective. This is why they were so uh, so. There were times they were taking targets simultaneously, and Grom quite often could complete those uh, uh, the, the takedowns even faster than us. Sometimes, sometimes we were faster. So, uh, but otherwise, it's really not that much. The same guy, same mentality. The mentality is important that I say this, because this is the, the only unit, I think the, um, maybe the first unit in entire Poland ever to build from ground up on our uh, mirror, on our, just like we are. So they never had the baggage of the communist type of military, socialist uh, state. These guys were trained and brought up into special forces the way we are being brought up. So mentality is the same. Their equipment maybe was uh, pretty much the same, but if you look at the details, maybe different manufacturer and uh, different this, different that, and of course different uniforms, but otherwise we work very well together. Uh, but this is thanks to you know, their professionalism and professionalism of our Navy SEALs and how we uh, uh, carried ourselves. Yeah. So, yeah, they earn our respect. And I know that they have a lot of respect for us Navy SEALs. Yeah. Man. And I'm trying to remember the last time that I saw you in person. And I think it was Chris Kyle's memorial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And I went there. Yeah. With a tragic event. And it's, I remember the, the Grom had one or two or even three wreaths, at least one, because they gave it. And I forget. I forget. You were there. They were there. Something happened. I was supposed to just be in the audience. And then I ended up carrying out the Grom wreath and putting it in front of the, the casket um, and then saluting and then taking my seat right there because there's something there was someone from the Grom wasn't there and they knew our relationship with the Grom. And, and so I ended up carrying the Grom wreath, uh, or one of them. Yeah. That that reef, that reef is on the, in the movie uh, about Chris Kyle at the very end. That's the reef from Grom that uh, you put it by his, uh, Chris's casket. So, you know, I still have a, uh, my my hair stands on my hair and on my head and uh, um, such a tragic event and uh, it seems like it happened yesterday yeah and i think that was the last time i saw you in person I, i'm trying to remember yeah, if i've seen well, you since I, after i yeah after i, I retired i became a software engineer i work for the great company and uh, it's the life is different now but i still miss it yeah. and you know i think I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you had the same experiences with health, like most of us, where, you know, the uh, shooting high power rifles, uh, explosives being a breacher, in my case, 
it, it sh- we didn't know at the time the damage it causes to us. At least I didn't. When I show up in bonds after war as a SEAL instructor, I remember I was waking up at 2 o'clock every, uh, every morning, 2 o'clock a.m., and just I could sleep with zombies in sound sleep and wake up next next moment every single night. And I didn't know what it was. So how do you deal with it? I just, the, as always in the SEAL teams, you go and ask fellow SEALs, hey, you know, this is what happened to me. What do you think? We're just like, that's weird. That's crazy. You know, some of people have a problem with sleeping, but with me, it was like two o'clock I can sleep. And so the consensus was at that time, that my apartment must be haunted. There must be a ghost waking me up. And I actually got scared. I'm, I'm afraid of ghosts, I guess. So I started looking for a different apartment. It didn't cross my mind that it could be TBI, the traumatic brain injury from all these explosives. I knew we had some, there were some effects, but I didn't know that that part of it is uh, affecting me too, my sleep. So yeah, that's uh, that's something that I think many of us, many of us now, uh, have to deal with it and uh, uh, pay the piper. I think. Yeah, yeah. I checked. Yeah, it's. Uh, what have you done to deal with that over the years? Well, so I try to uh, different things because the important uh, is important to know that not uh, the the treatments will not work for everyone. Every treatment, some treatments may work for some but we're not for others. So I struggle with it. And uh, I did. Uh, so first, actually, I went to the clinic, the, one of the clinics in Dallas, Texas. Mm. And it seems like it had some effects on it. They even asked me at one time to be their spokesman for and be like the liaison for military. I did. But it tells you now. So what turned out to be, they were using fake prescriptions, the, the prescriptions signed by doctor who does not work there. It turned out to be that three of our guys committed suicide after visiting that clinic. It turned out to be that the medicine that our guys should get, they were not getting it. And that I know from one of the doctors who complained to me about it. So I, I when I found it out, when I, we lost, we, all, we lost three of our guys, but there were two Marines, I believe, that committed suicide as well. I shut this down. I told them I'm done with it. And they were threatening me with the, with the lawyers, the female business manager, actually. She told, she, she, she decided to write the letter with the lawyer. And they sent those lawyers letters to every possible employer I could apply for the job for. So, uh, but anyway, I shut them down. That's like six or seven months later, they were gone because the fraud, the actually state, the state of Texas was trying to sue them for the money that they fraudulently, I believe, used. Wow. And um, so, yeah, we, I, I, I was, I'm, I'm proud I shut this, this, this fraud, uh, fraudulent clinic down. The doctors, were, some of the doctors were not fraudulent. The operation was fraudulent. And, uh, and uh, you know, some of the doctors were on it, but not all of them. Some of them I still have respect for. Wow. But yeah, so that didn't work. So, and you know, another thing, I'm sure you experience the same thing. If you feel and don't feel good, if there's something wrong with you, what do you do? You ask fellow team guys, because there's the closest, it was my closest family. I didn't have any family at the time. So ask team guys, what do you think? I'm, am I okay? People are saying I'm not, I'm, I'm not okay. Or like, no, you're okay. You're just like me. But you know, 
we, we did, I didn't think that he, I'm just like him because he's um, fucked up like I am too. So he's, he has the same injuries, he has the same uh, uh, afflictions. So yeah, we look normal to each other, but in reality it's not. Uh, the, the, the biggest, the, the, the best, I think, indication that something is wrong will come from your family and friends yeah. who, who can see the difference. You and your fellow team guys, it's very seldom, it's very difficult to tell because we are all the same, we injure very similar way. Yeah. And then, so, but then I met uh, 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 so I refused to go to another treatment after that experience with the clinic in Texas. Yeah. And at one, at one time, uh, and I owed it to Dan Cerillo, Taco, uh, rest in peace, brother. Uh, he actually said, Drago, you're not okay. Um, I need to get you in the treatment. I need to get you in the treatment. Amber and Marcus Capone were running that, that treatment at the time. And uh, there was a mission within with Dr. Polanco and what a great organizations. And uh, they took me to Texas and uh, this is where I, uh, not Texas, in Mexico, because it is still illegal here. Uh, we use the, the, that medicine that uh, it changed me. I, when, I was come, when I came out of this treatment, I told my wife that, uh, you know, you don't have to like Drago in the cage. I bury him in the desert. Mm. So, and it uh, seems like the problems subside and eventually stopped. Um, I see things differently. Well, one of the this indicators for me, for I mean, for people around me was, I had no dimmer switch. I'll be honest about it because maybe it will help <clears throat> another team guy. I had a dimmer switch. I was either on or off. I either like somebody or I hate somebody. And there was nothing in between. You know, there are people after this treatment that came out and say, well, I love everybody. I have no anger, no nothing. Well, you know, if I didn't like somebody, it was like, I don't like him. But at least I don't want to kill him. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm much better. And my wife was very proud of me, uh -huh. that, that what I accomplished. But, uh, you know, this is as much her work as mine. I always laugh and smile because uh, I say she domesticated me. I'm domesticated <laughs> now. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I believe it. <laughs> believe it. Uh, <laughs> I had uh, Nick Norris on the podcast also who uh, did the same um, uh treatment down in Mexico. And he talked me through all of that. And, um, yeah, it's incredible. Um, the, how many, many people that's, that's helped. Uh, and I'm, and I'm yeah. so glad that you, that you did that and that, uh, that you're, you're feeling, you're feeling good. Yes. Yes, definitely. It's a totally different life. Yeah. Um, I enjoy it. And my wife is, I think is the biggest advocate of this treatment. Yeah. So we are, uh, operating the Navy SEALs fund 501c3 charities. Yes. And uh, we are very adamant about helping in this case with this treatment. So we are, because my, uh, I have damage to my eyes and they just burn me sometimes. Okay, so, uh, so, my, so we are in support of this treatment and it is important for us that guys go to it. Um, so yeah, Navy Seals Fund. That's this is my logo above my head. Yeah, see it right there. It's, Navy Seal. So for everybody listening, NavySealsFund.org. Um, yes, Brotherhood Beyond Battlefield. Yeah. Man. Yes, 
as 501c3, but we are a bit different because our board of directors, I mean, nobody in CEO, uh, uh, in CEO team, I mean, nobody in Navy CEO's fund receives a payments, a pension. We don't have a pension plans. We don't have a, uh, we do not have salaries. Mm. Everything is done by CEOs on voluntary basis. And we have a civilian uh, oversight board, our uh, our sponsors, we have our uh, ambassadors, mm. but everything is uh, is done on a voluntary basis. So all the money coming into Navy SEALs fund uh, going directly to the mission. We do not have salaries or paid position within Navy SEALs fund. Yeah. Oh, man. And so, uh, man, what's, uh, when you look at the state of the, the country today and you think about your sons and what, uh, what they're inheriting and what their kids will inherit, what, uh, are you hopeful for the future? I am hopeful. Even now, people, uh, I hear a lot of, there's a lot of things happening in our country that are alarming to me. But please remember, America was built on personal freedom. America was built on goodness. And I I tell you this too, uh, the goodness in people is so transparent uh, because they don't think about it. This is how America was born. This is how American people are brought up. If you do something good for other people, you don't dwell on it or what I can get back for it. People here when they are good because this is the way they were born and brought up. So, um, and it is so normal in America that people here don't pay attention. They just do good things because this is the right thing to do. But I have to tell you, this is not normal anywhere else in the world. It's only normal in America. And I am hopeful that some of these divisions created now, um, we will we will overcome it. We as a nation, we need to be proud of America. We need to make sure that we protect America because nowadays the warfare is a new type of warfare. They don't need to storm our beaches, beaches, right? I say, right? Yep. Not the beaches, beaches. Yeah. I have always problem with this. It's, it's one it's of the words one. I'm not allowed to say it's that my one. wife. <laughs> so, so nobody will storm our beaches to take over our country. They will not parachute in our country to take over our country. There is no need. Nowadays, if you purchase yourself a politician, if you purchase yourself a party and open borders, who needs army to invade America? That America is going to collapse under the, from the treason within. This is the only way somebody can conquer America is by treason from within. But again, we, we need to make sure that this thing doesn't happen. We need to protect America the best we can. And uh, I think America is in good hands. So. We are, we are the guardians. Awesome, so, man. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. And we, again, we need to unite. We, we need to be proud of America. Yeah. We need to be supportive of America and American people. You know, there's so many divisions, people. There are forces in our country within. They try to make these guys, are, this group is this, this group is that. Well, why we, do we stop looking this way? Why don't we just look at no matter if you black or white, if you, if you straight or not, you are an American. We fought so you can live in the country where you don't have to look over shoulders, over your shoulder, to uh, and be safe. So if we just look at our guys and, uh, and our citizens 
and see just one color, red, white, and blue, I think we'll be much better as a country and stop these divisions. And uh, we need to love each other. We need to be good to each other. And I, I don't care if you are whatever your political stand is. For me, you're just American and I'll protect you. Man. I can't think of a better way to end it than that. And the book is The Pledge to America, One Man's Journey from Political Prisoner to U.S. Navy SEAL. So I uh, want everybody to read this book. And uh, it, it's fascinating. And Drago, man, thank you for all you've done for this nation and uh, for your friendship. And, man, I hope I can see you in person one of these days soon and uh, give you a big hug. My home is your home, brother. Anytime here in Ohio, in Ohio you know how to find me. And... Uh, Beer on me. Um, and again, I go to combat with you in the heartbeat anytime. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate inviting me. Works both ways, brother. Both ways. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Black Raffle Coffee Company. You can help Black Raffle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the boot campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The Boot Campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle in the Boot Campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle ready-to-drink coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store. And no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community. And with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, this is the Sig Sauer Cross Rifle right here. Absolutely love this setup. I have two of them and Cross Rifle, Sig Sauer Optic right here and Atlas Bipod up front. If you haven't shot one of these, highly recommend you give it a run. I love mine and uh, am a big fan. SigSauer.com. Also, I saw that G-Shock here, Casio, had a 40th anniversary edition of the G-Shock, which is the watch that I primarily wore downrange. So picked up one of those as well. And what else going on here? Black Rifle Coffee. This is my favorite right here. Silencer Smooth. Get the big bag every month. And I don't get this for, for free. I've been ordering this for a long time and absolutely love it. So check it out, blackriflecoffee.com. And ooh, look at this. This was pretty cool. So Grizzly River Art. So go to Instagram, Grizzly River Art, Jonathan Griswold over there. And his favorite book that I've done thus far was Only the Dead. So this is his take on a scene from Only the Dead. And if you've read the book, you know which one it is. So, uh, man, Jonathan, thank you so much. So talented. And you can get to his website from his Instagram page. So once again, that is Grizzly River Art. Art. Check it out. And 
course, go to officialjackcar.com. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for merch like these coasters and a bunch of other stuff. All right, that's it for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Find out more about Drago on his website, and that is D-R-A-G-O-D-Z-I-E-R-A-N.com. You can also follow him on Instagram, also at Drago, D-R-A-G-O-D-Z-I-E-R-A-N. And be sure to pick up his book, The Pledge to America. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. Keep fighting.